Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Good morning and welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I'm your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. On this week's show, we have got two great guests here. First up is Carter Laren, founder of one of the first channels focusing on culture called Unsafe Space. He's a writer, cultural commentator, and he has insights of the now real-world consequences of when cultural ideologies influence governance. I then welcome back to Counterculture, Kelly Veludos. Kelly and I will talk more about what's happening in our Kiwi classrooms and explore simple solutions to help support our kids when the system fails them. Marty Gibson will also be along with our roundup of legacy media stories of the week, and I'll finish things off with the woke word of the week. So a very busy morning this morning. Time for a little bit of feedback, though. Uh, firstly, from the text machine, ESGs are the Chinese social credit system for business. New Zealand is in big trouble and I know that that will be in regards to um, the Trevor Larden interview that we did last week. Uh, Marie, I think Trevor was a little bit over the top in the 1980s Christchurch driving a red Fiat that was painted over not a bloody larder etc. He was right though as it turns out. Exactly. Let's. This is again I think for Trevor, let's call, call it for what it is, weaponized fear. Weaponized fear is used in warfare. We are flooded with fear porn. This is a professional hit job again against the people of New Zealand. And there is so much free floating anxiety around there. I thoroughly agree. Great conversation, Marie, with Karina. And then, of course, is referring to Karina Shields. I once had respect for teachers. It's almost gone. When they're only willing to strike and make noise over money and not the jab or the gender ideology, values are out of place. And that's from uh, Athena. Look, I totally get it, but there are still some really amazing teachers out there, and I'll be talking to one of those incredible educators very, very shortly. Uh, this is from Kelly. Hi, Marie. Just wanted to say how much I enjoyed listening 
to Dailandi. What a wonderful woman. Please get her on back again. I don't mind what she talks about. Um, trust me, we are working on that, Kelly. Don't you worry about that. Our family will not be voting again. The system we have is totally corrupt. Good people getting in will not be able to change the system. All we are voting for is to be slaves. Our national representative, when Hubby went to see him, said no point fighting to get in as it wasn't their turn. That really opened our eyes. We only have one party in New Zealand. I wish people would research. It's all available. You just have to want to know the truth. Very bad times ahead for New Zealand. Look, you know, as I said, I'm an undecided voter. I do believe in voting, though, because I also believe that um, compliance isn't, you know, much use. You've got to do something. James says, great show, counterculture team. Thank you very much, James. And this is from Ollie saying, thanks to Marie and Marty. You guys are awesome. Can totally recommend 10 to 1. Lastly, from Alice, uh, loved your wide open broad conversation today, Marie. As an outspoken Brit living here in Waipu since 2009, I'm loving the frankness and the global perspective. As a natural health person, I'm interested in the conversation around getting rid of toxic shit. Have huge trust in our body's ability to regenerate, and there's some incredible proven natural health products out there. New to RCR, thanks for holding up the voice for the people. You are most welcome, and keep the feedback coming. As I said, 2057 is the text number inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email you're listening to counterculture on rcr welcome along to counterculture this is marie here on reality check radio and my guest is carter laren from the united states cultural commentator and jack of all trades someone that i've known for quite a long time carter welcome thank you for having me I feel like we've got a here. role reversal. I know. I do not miss interviewing people, though, so please embrace it. I'll just sit here and answer questions. Tell us a little bit more about you, how it all started, and how your journey with this whole cultural madness started. <laughs> wow, uh, that's a big ask. I guess at the outset, I should say I was, I was always on the fringes of culture. And I don't mean that in a bad way necessarily, but if Kiwis are familiar with what a libertarian is in America, but I was always either libertarian or libertarian leaning, I mean, for the past 25 plus years. And that's, it's always given me a perspective that's, I think, different from most because most people identify with, they're either red or blue, right? They're either Republicans or Democrats, and that's the the lens that they wear and how they view all politics all the time. And that just wasn't how I viewed politics ever. And so I can skip over a few decades. Basically, I was a, a startup guy, technology person. I was a cryptographer. I built some companies. I sold some companies. I ended up being in venture capital for a little while. And eventually, I, I'm trying to think of the year. I think it was probably 2015, 16. I don't remember exactly the year. Maybe it was 2017. I had seen this woke stuff really starts to come to a head. And, you know, I was the kind of person who always, I had been complaining about some of the kind of deep philosophical errors that were prevalent and seemed to be growing, but I wasn't spending a lot of time thinking about how that would manifest and really, really trying to understand it. I just kind of looked, it's, it's kind of like, imagine living in a society in which most people were a religion that's foreign to you. You kind of accept that it's there, but you don't think about 
what it's going to become and how it's going to manifest someday. And that's kind of how I viewed a lot of some of the fundamental tenets of kind of radical leftism that have been with us and kind of developing, but mostly just popping up on in protests or or college campuses or whatever. What were the, some of the things that were kind of piercing the veil that you started to see that you thought, hmm? I mean, the biggest thing was it was a difference in how Silicon Valley was treating me personally was the thing that that really hit home. When I first moved to San Francisco in 2000, people were friendly, even though I wasn't on the left like most people were. They, you know, they kind of smirked and said, oh, you're a crazy libertarian. That's cool. Let's hang out. They, it didn't matter. Right. It, it didn't. I wasn't being ostracized because I it didn't have the exact right to views. There was a level of tolerance that, frankly, I appreciated. And by 20, whatever it was, 16 or 17, I don't totally remember, the tables had turned. And I was running a small venture company, and I was accused in, of being a Nazi by someone who we had turned down for investment. And the the evidence that was presented was that this person was a... I'm, try, I'm, trying, not, uh, I'm trying to be vague... They were in one of the oppressed classes, uh, several of the, uh, quote, oppressed classes. Now, this person's business idea was illegal and stupid. So, that, I mean, we turned this person down. And it wasn't just me. My business partner did as well. We turned them down like we do most people that apply, right? That That's normal for venture companies. But this person went off and, and scoured my Twitter account and had discovered that I had retweeted Mike Cernovich. Now, he wasn't huge at the time, and I don't even remember what I had retweeted about him, but it wasn't anything particularly shocking. But the fact that I had retweeted a a pariah, where <laughs> retweeted someone uh, with whom we should all agree is a horrible person and hate, that was the evidence that was presented. It turned into a bigger deal than I would have thought. People actually took it seriously and said, oh my God, he, I can't believe he retweeted this guy. And again, he said something benign. I don't remember what it was that I retweeted. But at that point, my business partners and I were looking at doing the next round of the fund. And, and one of them, who's who I'm still good friends with, said, look, if we do this, you have to um, you have to stop tweeting. You can't mm-hmm. express yourself online. That was the point at which I just said, you know what? I don't need this. I don't need... And, and by the way, that's one anecdote. There were several uh, similar anecdotes of, of where it was becoming very clear that something radical and intolerant had become mainstream on the left and in Silicon Valley generally. Was that before or after the 2016 election? Some of what happened was before the 2016 election. I think this particular thing might have been after because it was the final straw. There were some incidences before. For example, um, one of my best friends and her husband were assaulted at the I don't know if you remember what was called the Battle of Berkeley. Milo yes, Yiannopoulos was, went to speak. That's mm-hmm. right, yeah. And uh, I remember I was sitting at my dinner table uh, with my family, and I got a text one night from my friend, and she, it just said, I don't know, I'm not going to mention her name or her husband's name. I don't know where my husband is. Uh, I was beaten up. I don't know where my husband is. Can't see because I was amazed. And I don't know where I am. I'm in Berkeley. Like, please come and get me. That was eye-opening that that this kind of... Because all they had done was show up to listen to someone speak. Um, <laughs> we know all about that in this country, but keep... Yeah, yeah keep but going. at the time, I mean, it was, it was one of the first events that was really eye-opening about just how violent and authoritarian the, the left had become. And it's not that there wasn't violence and authoritarian elements in the left all the time. It's just that they became mainstream. They were accepted and normalized. And 
Um, by the way, I don't think the they they found the person who who did a lot of this stuff to her and her husband and who by her husband, by the way, was beaten unconscious in the middle of a road. I don't think anything actually happened to either one. There was maybe a slap on the wrist, but you know, Berkeley police didn't care. No one cared. So there was a lot of events like that. And then that last straw was this realization that I don't I don't even want to be in the Silicon Valley ecosystem right now because it was I was incensed that someone would say, you can't tweet, right? Like you can't express yourself in this completely unrelated medium because crazy people are going to take anything you say and use it against us from a business perspective. And it was a rational thing to tell me to do. So I don't blame the guy. And like I said, I'm still friends with him, but it it was a, it was a canary in the coal mine. It was a sign that, oh, this is not a culture I can be a part of right now. Do you think that that was like a start of like a cultural creep, particularly with the censorship? Because I think that was one of the first things that a lot of people started to notice was this need to start to self-censor what would normally yes. be water cooler conversations or, as you said, a simple tweet mm -hmm. in a public forum. Yeah. I mean, I think and I, and I think that's one of the most overlooked but dangerous uh, changes that's happened in the last decade or so is the self-censorship from I'll just I don't mean this in a necessarily in a derogatory way from normies just mm. people who aren't really they don't have an agenda they're just trying to live their life and take care of their family and have their job and be happy and do you know whatever they think is right generally realizing that they can't speak openly they can't even you can't contemplate often you know often the way we solve problems is by is by speaking them. I mean, language is not just a communication mechanism. It's a mechanism by which we think. It's how we conceptualize. It's how we work out ideas. And often by speaking and communicating with other people and maybe even arguing with them, that's how we arrive at the truth in a... Or, or I will say that's how we arrive at our convictions. That's how we come to decide what it is that we believe and why or what we think about something and why. And if you're not allowed to do that, um, it really neuters your ability to to think, which which destroys your ability to actually fight evil because you don't really you might not even be able to work out exactly why that's evil or exactly what you think what you think because you can't touch the subject. You can't, it's toxic. It's radioactive. You can't go there. And so that part of your I want it's not physically that part of your brain, but that part of your mental model of the world atrophies and you are left defenseless. And you're also enabling really, really bad ideas to spread. So it's it's one big, you know, the left really learned how to emotionally bully people. And that's how we find ourselves in the position uh, where we are now, where a lot of things that are implemented at national levels or even at, at large organizations aren't actually what most mainstream people would want, but the people achieved the power and the ability to do that primarily through emotional bullying. And that gave them the avenue to, yeah. by which they achieved power. And that Rubicon seemed to have been crossed, I think, in 2016, because there was, well, I think, always an element of it there. But then when Trump got elected and no one expected him to get elected, least of all the Democrats, the hysteria that followed that the cultural fallout from that election is still, I think, being felt, and it's now beginning to resurface now that he's running again. Have you 
actually dared dip your toe in the water and seen what's going on with the... Well, yeah, I mean, I know he's he's facing charges. I mean, I look, I think I think you're right. I, I mean, clearly Trump's election. I will say, by the way, some of us expected him to win, uh, myself being one. of them. Yeah, my uh, husband was the other. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What isn't surprising is that people don't like a president that was elected. That happens every year. Roughly half of the population is pissed off that not every year, every four years, roughly half the population is angry about who got elected. That's not uncommon. But the hysteria over Trump, I think it it, it was not only the spark that really it revealed a deep division that was already in America. It it was used to justify a shift in behavior from a what would I would call a more classically liberal stance by both sides, which was, uh, and I'm specifically the, the the left is the one that shifted here, but this classical liberal stance of well, we might hate you and think you're horrible, but we'll debate you and we're not going to burn your house down or beat you up, like that's, you know, we we still want to have civil, if not, you know, even even though it might be very <laughs> enthusiastic argumentation it's it's still non-violent and i think the hysteria around trump was used to justify transitioning to not just bullying in the workplace or bullying in friendships or bu- emotional bullying generally and ostracizing people but also violence like actual violence and that i think is i don't necessarily think that uh, this is going to sound really dark of me i don't think that was bad because I think that was there underneath the left's philosophy the entire time. And the sooner that it comes to a head and we deal with it head on and decide what kind of a society we want moving forward, the better. So it was bound to happen. This is leftism has authoritarianism baked in philosophically. It's just really good at, you know, it, it, it can do this slow roll for decades and it can cover it up and use nice language for a while. But eventually it needs to rear its ugly head. And I think 2016 was the spark that caused the conflagration of violence. And, and you saw finally the, the mask of the left fell off, so to speak. Mm. No, I, I just literally wrote down here, was it the unmasking of the left? In the media, that was also a huge shift in the media. Any pretense for unbiased reporting seemed to get thrown out the window in 2015 well, going into 2016. I don't even know if I would agree with that because I think they still have the pretense. They still believe that they're unbiased. I, it's hard for me to say that that happened. I, what I think you see in the media is there was this shift in mainstream acceptance of radical leftism. And uh, when that shift happens, it means that certain assumptions that one makes when one is doing any activity are now leftist assumptions. And that happened in the media. So they just, it just became, talking points became fact. You know, I just saw, I just saw a video. I think Dave Rubin posted a video on Instagram recently of uh, Rachel Maddow saying how much the, the facts matter and they'll never lie to you. And that's some, and that's why they can't broadcast some speech Trump was making. And of course, then he interspliced it with, her presenting as truth a bunch of what turned out to be false claims about the COVID vaccine, right? And just lying her her face off because that was the accepted truth. And so 
I don't think all these people understand that they're lying. I think that they aren't thinkers. We're not a society of thinkers anymore. We're not a society that wants to sit down and have conversations and nuance. And if someone says something that bothers us, we don't ask questions and take a deep breath and say, okay, well, that's really, I find that really bothering, but let's really get to under, you know, let's understand the nuance of what you're saying and let's have this conversation and continue. The only thing that's not popular anymore is nuance. Mm. Like as long as you, as long as you scream at the top of your lungs, your position one side or another will like you, but no one wants to have a conversation that's, you know, granted, it can be more boring if you're not an intellect. If you don't like thinking, having a nuanced discussion probably bores you. You just want to see someone scream at YouTube so you can say rah, 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 and move on and feel good about yourself. But and that's, that's how Rome falls. And that's pretty much what brought you to Unsafe Space, to create Unsafe Space, was to have a place to have at least some of those conversations. So if people were wanting to engage in conversations that they could. So, I mean, you did that as a video format for three years? I think so. It was a few years. Yeah, Yeah. probably three years. I don't remember exactly. There's still some fantastic content there. I mean, you've spoken to some incredible people, including me. Yes. (laughs) One in particular, Kiwi, just absolutely incredible. You should watch all of her videos. There were some really good conversations and you there weren't that many people in that space having those conversations at that time. I mean, there is loads of parallel content now, which is awesome, but then not so much. I know that when I discovered your channel, which I think you'd been going about six months at that point, I was feeling very alone in the wilderness down here. I remember emailing you because I finally saw an interview that you did and I thought, oh gosh, I'm not alone on this, particularly in the industry that I was working in because Mm -hmm. that's the one thing that they do is they make you feel isolated. They're very good at isolating you away and making you think that you're the most despicable person in the world and nobody is like you and you you've been cleaved from the herd to die in the wilderness to use the quote from the house of cards but actually when you realize that that's not the case they are the exception not the rule it's it is yeah doing that so who are some of the people that during that time that you spoke to that really sat with you well you know a lot of the interview aside from the obvious uh interviews with you that were the best. The interviews I think I enjoyed most were, first of all, they were actually the ones earlier on in which we didn't have a lot, a big audience. And the conversation about woke culture was not all over YouTube already. And so it's it was like the before it was really popular or was just gaining in popularity. Some of my favorite conversations were James Lindsay early on. Mm. Um, he was excellent to speak with. And uh, I would say, I guess this one was a little bit later, but Stephen Hicks was really interesting to talk to. I like philosophy and he, he's a philosopher. I think he actually, I think he actually helps Jordan Peterson with some of his philosophical understandings, but he wrote an excellent book called, I think it was explaining postmodernism or postmodernism explained or something. And we had him on. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. We had some more. Uh, I would say sensational names. We ended up getting, for example, Mike Cernovich to come on. And it's always fun to have those kind of conversations. My personality, though, is I personally like the subdued, nuanced, long, you know, nitty gritty conversations um, rather than the drum beating about how dumb the other side is. And both of them are necessary. 
I just have my preference. Uh, actually, another person I really enjoyed speaking with was Mark Pellegrino. Yeah, yeah. Because he's that uh, was who I was going to bring up because that, it's his conversations that I really enjoyed. He's an actor and he works in that environment, but he has some really refreshing ideas and he wasn't afraid i mean you've had several conversations with him he wasn't afraid to bounce an idea around within a conversation and take it on board or push it back which i found quite refreshing and as you said it's that nuance that gets missed yeah and that's one of the things i really like about mark (laughs) i actually we've spoken several times since then um he's been on a few times you know i wouldn't say we became friends but we did i did get a respect for him and we became acquaintances that check in with each other once in a while. And, and, uh, and that's the thing I like about him is that he was not trying to, this is going to sound ironic. He wasn't trying to act. Hmm. He wasn't trying to fit into whatever idea of what he should be saying, what you think he should be saying. He was just, you know, and he's willing to kind of noodle ideas. So he, he was really enjoyable. Uh, It's been a long time uh, since I spoke with him. Trying to think if there's any others that I really some of them were just big names that were cool to have on, but um oh you know what? Colin Wright I had on super early. We never had him on again, although I should have. He was really interesting because he was an evolutionary biologist, I think, or maybe just a uh, maybe he was a geneticist. And he's popping up he's popping field. up quite a lot now. I see you see him being he wasn't interviewed. at the time. No. Yeah. Um, but since then I think he started working with What's the Australian magazine that I don't remember? Oh, Spectator. That's why he's we he was with Is the Spectator. Yeah, Spectator magazine. Okay. He's been doing yeah. a bit of work with Rowan Dean, I think. Yeah, he was fun. I did start it because I wanted I, I thought, well, <laughs> it was kind of reactionary in the sense that, oh, I can't tweet anymore. Fine. That's all I'll do is speak online. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm going to start uh speaking about this stuff online. But turns out that's not really where my heart is. Uh we can get into that if you want, but Still do have a close friend of mine still makes content for Unsafe Space about once a week. Um, he's more focused on politics and the Constitution, and it's great, and I'm glad he does. And, and um, you know, I'd like that to continue. And, you know, we may have other stuff show up once in a while. But uh, as for my active, constant involvement, that's over. Well, a lot of these things, though, are often it's an evolution and a journey. So it doesn't need to necessarily be sustaining, but it plants a seed to allow other things to grow. So from that, like I know Adam Coleman, for example, I mean, I met Adam in the unsafe community. He went on to write an incredible book and, you know, he's now working in the publishing space. So it is all part of that sort of greater growing and evolution. And I know I certainly wouldn't have had the confidence to undertake this role if I hadn't reached out all the way back then in 2020. I know when I started following you on YouTube, it was something like 1,500 people. So it was was way back. It was small. It was way back in the early days. But it is about having those courageous conversations. And we talk about that a lot here on Reality Check Radio, is empowering people to start just retaking those conversations back because yeah. it's amazing how they slowly eep and seep away. And actually, you're allowed to have those conversations theoretically in a democracy. Yeah. In New Zealand, especially, our niceness, you know, we've known to be very nice, egalitarian people. And then after COVID it, and being told what to do, it's like, well, actually, you don't necessarily have to always follow a guideline. You know, you can actually push back. You have a voice. 
Yeah. Mm. I think the the left, I'm saying the left, I mean, uh, there's a lot of terms I could use for that. So I, please, when I say the left, understand, I, I'm sometimes I'm talking about both sides. I'm, I'm mm. talking about kind of the the World Economic Forum and gender people. Uh, but, you know, that they have relied on that niceness that you're talking about. They rely on the your, your virtue, actually. They're using your virtue against you. You want to be a good person. You want to be a nice person. You want to not be rude or create waves or cause a problem because you're trying to be good. You're trying to have a pleasant society. And what they can do is use that against you by convincing you that merely speaking, merely contemplating an idea out loud uh, is dangerous so that you could upset the apple cart, not only for other people, but you might actually ruin your own reputation simply because you had an idea about something uh, and you wanted to discuss it. Or you weren't clear on something. Sometimes, I mean, it's to the it's beyond this point. But I mean, you could even be in agreement with some agreement with an, with an idea of theirs. But maybe you want to clarify and you want to play devil's advocate for a minute and ask a question about it or get a nuance. Even that will get you banned because it is a religion. I rarely talk too much about this, you know. Recently, but I had a conversation with someone the other day about about this, and she was still kind of in that mindset. Uh, that you're talking about, where it's like, well, I want to just get along and like, I don't need to focus on that stuff anymore. And she was saying to me, I'm glad you're not paying attention to the news anymore because you really shouldn't focus on it. We'll just let them be. And I said, well, you know, I'm not paying attention to the news, but you got to understand you can't be neutral. She was trying to play neutral party. And one thing you have to understand about the the this movement that's taken over, this woke movement is by their definition, there is no neutral. They do not accept Switzerland as a stance. That is not a stance. You're not allowed. Neutral is the enemy. So that's what they mean when they say things like you're either anti-racist or you're racist. There's no not racist. Like That's what they mean by that. You're either with them or against them. There is no, I'm not sure. There is no, let me think about it. There is no, I don't care about this issue. I don't want to be a part of it. Silence Silence is violence. violence. Mm. That's right. So I think people who believe that this will go away if they just ignore it, uh, if they just try and sit on the sidelines, not only will it not go away as a whole, it it might not even go away from you. You might still be victim uh, because your neutrality is not what you think it is. It's not the shield you think it is. Well, and also if one thing history surely should teach us is you can't comply your way out of tyranny. No, no. So let's look at some of the real world consequences because you live in the Bay Area, you live in San Francisco and you have been there since what, 2000? Yeah. Let's talk about San Francisco's fall from grace in that time because I think San Francisco (laughs) was a Petri dish for this is what happens when these ideologies take hold in a real-world context, is it not? Yeah, I think to a large extent, because major cities in California actually drive culture in a way that you know maybe not everyone realizes. Hollywood is the obvious example, but San Francisco also as a tech hub, and it's been a tech hub for a long time, has a huge, huge impact on culture. 
so I think in many ways, California, you know, when I, I remember when I was even, I think I was in high school, I remember someone saying, well, what happens in California is what will happen here in five years. Like, that's just how it works. I think in many ways, that's still true. So what's happened to San Francisco? First of all, the streets are overrun with homeless people in a way that's exponentially worse than it was 20 years ago. Um, there's literally feces and needles and stuff on the streets that you have to step over. And not just in one tiny spot in the city like it used to be, but like all over the place. Crime is rampant because California does not, I don't know if it's all of California or just the few counties in the Bay Area, I don't recall, but we don't prosecute theft under something like $900. People just steal from stores constantly. In fact, well, they've got a DA in LA that isn't, he doesn't like to prosecute anybody from what I understand. Even just the theft, what has happened and you can, you know, you don't even have to turn, you don't have to turn to like, I'm not talking about alternate sources and I've got some special, you know, special inside info. Just go watch CNBC, watch, watch retail companies talk about their sales and their profitability and watch them talk about the shrinkage problem that's arisen from organized crime, stealing products in places like California, where prosecution isn't happening under, you know, I think it's 900 something dollars. That's become a real problem and it's it's hurting businesses. Businesses have been closing up and leaving a lot of people. There's been a mass exodus of California for many businesses. Uh, Tesla's probably one of the uh, most famous examples of the headquarters moving out of the state. And we also have uh, an increase in violent personal crime. So there's been a lot of assaults and muggings and shootings and homicides. We're not Chicago yet, but, you know, we're on our way. I actually wonder whether you, you may even be worse than Chicago. Like, I know I was there in January of 2020, mm. and February of 2020, actually, having been there in September the previous year. And in that, what was that, barely six months, five months mm -hmm. It was, I mean, I was told to watch out in September, but as you said, what I did see in that February was defecation on the streets, was the needles, was the homeless problem, mm -hmm. was people with obvious drug and mental issues out and about. One of the things that I just kept an eye on is that there's an area of San Francisco. So if any listeners have been to San Francisco, this is probably one area that you'll know. It's the bottom, uh, the main CBD where you catch the cable car to go up and over the hill. So it's a huge tourist sort of hub. The Powell Street area by yeah. Market and Powell. Market and Powell, that's exactly it. And right on that corner there. So across the road from that, it was a Westfield shopping centre. Now, I think Westfield's an Australian company. They announced, was it last week or a few weeks ago, that they are pulling out. Nordstrom is gone. Saks off Fifth Avenue. Well, that was up on Union Square. That's gone. Whole Foods is gone. And Old Navy is gone. Anthropology is gone. Office Depot is gone. H&M uh, is gone. Abercrombie and Fitch is gone. They're just... Walgreens, yeah. I know Walgreens were It's closing. not worth being there. No. I mean, it's just... it's It really is a dystopia. And if, if you look at discussions... So I sometimes do pay attention to what, what are normal people saying? about what's going on, what's the sentiment in the Bay Area. And there is this kind of frustrating, <laughs> this frustrating conundrum that people are finding themselves in. They are all complaining about this. I can't live here anymore. This is horrible. I love the Bay Area. It used to be great. Now it's horrible, blah, blah, blah. My catalytic converter is getting stolen. My neighbor was mugged. They stole the, this guy's car yesterday, blah, blah, blah. Like all that kind of stuff going on. And yet... You know, there's a few people who maybe whine about DAs, but no one wants to change 
no, no one has said, hey, do you think maybe leftism doesn't work? Do you think maybe we should, you know, try something else? No, no one wants to try it. They want to try. And this has been true for anyone paying attention to politics. You can see this pattern throughout uh, history. This is true of any kind of big government mentality. It's when something fails, the problem is do more of the something. Right. They answered the, the solution to the Double problem. Down. It's like, oh, yeah, right. Well, we hey, the war on uh, the war on poverty is not working. Let's do let's fund it more. Right. The war on drugs isn't working. So let's buy, you know, more. Let's militarize our police more. Let's do more on the war on drugs. Let's do, so that mentality is it's a broken mentality and it's it's a loser mentality. Right. This is how you create disasters mm-hmm. is you you try something. It doesn't work. And what you should do when something doesn't work is pull the plug and try something else. If that's if you just from a pra- pragmatic standpoint, it's not working. Figure out why. Pull the plug. Figure out why. Try something else. Instead, the mentality is, well, it's not working because it's not people don't care enough. It's not funded enough. We haven't done enough. And, you know, if you look at Gavin Newsom and the general left solutions to almost all the problems that we're talking about, it's just, oh, well, we need to do more. We need to do more of the same. More in the same direction will magically remove the feces from the streets. Like that's that's their solution. Trevor Loudon, who I spoke to a couple of weeks ago, I asked him about the Democratic primary coming up. There's this tit for tat mm-hmm. going on between using the law to try and take out um, the candidates. And he has a theory that they won't allow Biden to run. They'll find something that will give him potentially a... Either they'll force him out of the running or it'll give him a dignified exit from mm. from that. And he thinks that they're going to parachute on Gavin Newsom. Well, that wouldn't be surprising. I don't know. I mean, I don't get involved in in, in the minutia of politics too much, but I, I will say that could be true. I mean, I could, Gavin certainly has, that's obvious that he has designs on running. Like, clearly he wants to run. He spends more time out of state campaigning than he does in state, it seems like. But another solution to Biden is, you know, get him reelected and have the person you want to be president as vice president. And, you know, he's not likely to last. You could probably get him reelected and then convince him to retire. You know, he seems pretty impressionable and managed. So I think if you're the DNC machine, you can use Biden in whatever way you want. And I'm not sure throwing that asset away in the election is the right strategy, but maybe it is. I don't know. I'm not their strategist. And and there are people who know better than I do on that. But, you know, largely, Marie, quote, both sides will hate me for this, but I, I mean this sincerely. Politics is a sideshow. You're being distracted. One of the reasons that I generally don't vote, which people can yell at me all they want for, uh, we can have philosophical discussions about that. I generally don't vote. One of the only times I voted for president was for Trump in his first term. People used to say to me, how can you possibly want Trump? He, especially because I was in the Bay Area. How can you possibly want Trump? He's this and he's that and he's horrible and he's crass and blah, blah, blah. And you, know, you grab him by the right. All that kind of stuff. And they their argument. And I said, well, you know, I would sometimes say, well, his policies actually aren't really different than anyone else. I mean, they're kind of like Bill Clinton's policies. So let's not get freaked out about the guy's policies. And usually they would agree to that. But they would say, yes, but. He corrupts the institution of the presidency. He's, it's, he's a stain on the honor of the presidency. And that's when I would say to them, yes, that's why I voted for him. Stop viewing the president 
as something honorable. Washington is full of a bunch of narcissistic, evil, power-hungry trolls. Stop thinking that they should be honored. Stop it. I see people conflate worship of politicians and Washington and the offices and the institutions. I see them conflate that with patriotism or with love of uh, America's founding. And those are two different things. I mean, America, when it was founded, was by far, in my opinion, the most moral state that has existed ever. It wasn't perfect. Lots of problems. You can throw slavery at me. Sure. Slavery was part of human history throughout all of human history by everyone everywhere. So sure, I understand that massive problems, but the direction to move, the, the direction that, that the U.S. founders moved in was, was uh, a, really a paradigm shift. It was individuals have rights. The government doesn't own you. They enshrined these rights. They actually, the Bill of Rights, there was a debate about the Bill of Rights as to whether it should be written down because obviously you would have those rights. And if we just enumerate them, then it, people will think those are the only ones, uh, but there's many more. It was a, It's a complete shift from being subjects of a king to individuals with rights who are self-governing. And that's noble. Granted, like I said, lots of lots of warts, uh, there, lots of things that needed to be fixed, lots of inconsistencies. Frederick Douglass talked about when when he criticized slavery. One of his criticisms was really along the lines of "You're being hypocritical. The Constitution is great; it says these things, but you're not living up to them." And he was correct about that, right? So all that stuff is great. All that stuff does not equal the office of the President of the United States and senators and congressmen. Like currently, we are. We are just an authoritarian state with a different justification. We're not as bad as China. I'm not going to say that we're as bad as China. But one thing China has going for it is they're not pretending to be Something anything other than an authoritarian mm. state. We pretend that we're this free country, that we, we have individual rights and that freedom matters. But you know what? It doesn't. That's not what we are. We're an authoritarian country. And we're run by people who believe that we are farm animals to be taxed. It's a tax farm. China runs a tax farm. Washington runs a tax farm. Washington uses different strategies. Granted, had a better origin. We'll agree. Uh, and they're not as bad as China. I'm not saying that. But it's like you see all this You see all this ho like hoopla about TikTok. Oh, no. The Chinese government might have access to our data. You know, as an American citizen, I'll say, I don't care. I don't want the NSA to have access to my data. I don't care if China has access to my data. They have no power over me. I don't live in China. They can't affect my life in any meaningful way. Other than I guess they could advertise things to me if they knew my, you know, <laughs> my activity on my phone. I don't care. You know who can screw with me a lot? Washington. You know what? And, you know, people like Edward Snowden come along and they reveal the authoritarian nature of the surveillance state. And, you know, they're a blip in the news. People forget about him and half the people still think he should be, you know, hanged for treason. Mm -hmm. When people get excited about so-and-so president is going to be in charge. I mean, look, Trump was in charge for four years. It doesn't matter what his faults were. It doesn't matter what he did or didn't do or how he, whether how much you hate him or how much you love him. It doesn't matter. You got to admit, he didn't get much done that he claimed he was going to get done. And he didn't get it done because he couldn't. Because the president's not in charge. I mean, he can make speeches and he can, 
he could do some things and he did some things, but you know, there's an entire state apparatus that, that is this, it's got massive inertia to turn it around can't be done in a single election. It's something that if you want your country to change, you need to look at the culture and you need to change the culture because the culture is what will eventually steer the ship. And it might not even happen in your lifetime. That's the only way to actually steer the ship. And we have been on the same direction culturally for my entire life. We've been, it's in a slow slide away from individualism and freedom towards a more socialist type uh, government. And it will continue that way, not because we're voting for the wrong people or the wrong people are in charge, but because that's what we allow. That's what we want culturally. That's that's the direction of our cultural movement. And it's a bad direction. I don't like it. But if you're going to get worked up about something, get worked about, up about culture, raise kids with that understand the problem that are going to introduce a, a counter movement culturally just just by their being and stop worrying whether you know Trump or DeSantis or Biden or even Gavin Newsom it holds the White House. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one moves faster to the wrong direction than the other one often. But you know what? Historically the difference isn't that big. Mm-hmm. I mean and and both sides hate when I say that, but it's just not factually it's just there isn't a big difference. That's what I love about you. Such a ray of sunshine. <laughs> no, I can be more positive if you want, but no, that's, that's no, the negative half, I no, guess. No, that is. But it also, too, in this country, we've had a huge wake-up call here. I mean, we're about to go to the polls on the 14th of October. New Zealanders are so, I mean, we're so easy-ozy. We've always been that way, you know, and we've been a nation of what they call number eight wire, is, which is a fencing wire. And it's a term that they use around Kiwis that they will figure stuff out because we don't necessarily have access to things here. And, and so you've got to MacGyver things to how you to need to make them happen. And we're a small country and we're nimble and we're all, we've been known for, to be all of those things. Those days are now over. But I think we can get them back. A lot of New Zealanders have woken up to that, I think, because of the rapidity of what's happened in the last five years. So unlike the cultural creep that has been slowly going on in the United States and through the universities and, and, you know, sort of seeping in from the edges from California and New York and the like and sort of moving its way inwards, New Zealand draws a lot of its cultural inferences from either the United States or the United Kingdom. We always have. And then we mm-hmm. sort of take that and mash it up and Kiwi-fy it and we make it our own. COVID turned all of that on its head and unmasked for a lot of New Zealanders the government that we had, the New Zealand Labour Party, which has always been a class-based socialist working party to no longer be that party. So even Labour supporters suddenly realised that, hold on, this is not the party we recognise anymore. And it's because it isn't. It's full of radicals and activists. It actually never was. Well, I know, but that's a a conversation for another time, I think. I know, I'm just, yeah, yeah. There is this sort of reawakening going on at the moment, and we are in an MMP system, so we don't have the two-party system. We've always had right. these other parties. You have to have the coalitions. And, and mm-hmm. the, exactly. And, and MMP, I, uh, it's been around now for about, it must be 30 years. I think it was they were saying it was the 30th anniversary of MMP. 
I know the first two elections I voted for were first past the post, but we're not, we've been an MMP ever since. This current cycle is the first time that we've had a government that's not required a coalition partner to temper it. Because of that, and because we don't have a constitution, we're one of only three countries that don't, us, Israel, and the United Kingdom, we do have a Bill of Rights, but it's not enshrined. Mm. COVID happens, and they were literally like a reckless runaway freight train. And I know that, you know, you and I spoke about this way back in, what, March 2020, wasn't it, initially? And it's only just gotten worse from there. And it is interesting to see doing this job and interacting with our listeners and the people that I've spoken to, starting to see those what I call the pendulum people, the people that sit in the middle, that the go-alongs to get-alongs who mm-hmm. are busy. You know, they've got families, as you said, families, lives, jobs, businesses, yep. all of a sudden. Understandably. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And they are now starting to think, mm, actually, we need to be a little bit more aware in order to make things and have things change. From that perspective, we've got our elections coming up. I agree with you. I don't think anything will massively change. I did a monologue last week where I talked about the scorpion and the frog, and I just said to people, look, what we need to realise in this election (laughs) is all politicians are scorpions. We just need to see which one. Exactly. We're all going to get stung. (laughs) It's just the nature of the beast. It's in their nature. They can't help it. It's about, I think, empowering people to start making changes with the self and what can you do in your family and maybe gravitate that out. So you've made some radical changes in the last little bit. And we were talking about it before we came live. What are some of the things that you have seen that you've done that has actually really helped improve where you're at and hopefully will ripple out from there? Can I back up for just a moment, though? And and I want to throw out an analogy that I I just thought of, because you and I were talking about Le Mans before. My daughter and I watched the 24-hour of Le Mans recently. Bomber uh, second, I think. She said he was a Kiwi. We are fighting. Le Mans is an endurance race. It's not a drag race. It's not even a Formula One Grand Prix. It's It's an endurance race. It's very tempting to get behind. Think of think about competing in Le Mans. It's very tempting to get behind a car and say, we have to overtake this next car. In fact, I think it might have actually been one of the Cadillacs with Bomber in it that was there was a Porsche trying to take him over. And, and he was really aggressive at one point in the race. He ended up crashing because he was too aggressive trying to get past this guy. It's easy to get excited about, you know, when you're watching a race or thinking about being a race, it's very ex- it's it's easy to get excited about stepping on the gas and going faster and getting around the next guy. And because it's there's a there's a palpable achievement right there, right in front of you. I just gained another spot. It's it's you you get immediate feedback and you feel really good. But the thing about winning Le Mans is you gotta finish. Having a car that doesn't break down and having a driver who doesn't take unnecessary risks to break your car, that's at least half, if not more than half the battle. It's finishing the race. Often, the short-term focus can be what undermines the long-term success. And so I'm not saying don't at all focus on politics. Politics is that short-term, you want to get by the guy, you want to get ahead a little bit in the race, and that's good. But it's a long race. And what you need is a car that's going to make it to the end when other people's cars break down. And to do that, you need to do the cultural maintenance. You need to make sure that 
part of your strategy, a big part of your strategy is building a culture that is immune to whatever it is that the political and legal system is doing. One way to think about this is we've got this Bill of Rights. Some of them are very clear. I'll pick on a very controversial one, which is the Second Amendment. Like it or not, you can delude yourself into thinking it means something other than what it means, but it's pretty clear that it means that you have a right to carry personal firearms. It's it's very clear. You might not like it. You might say it's antiquated and we shouldn't do it, but it's very clear what it means. The truth is, what it means is irrelevant if you have an entire population that interprets it however they want. I used to say on the show, they'll let you have the Constitution if they can have the dictionary, right? <laughs> the how you define those words, how you interpret that is all that matters because that's what's going to get implemented. That's what's going to affect real people's lives. And so if you have a country, it doesn't matter. It, the Second Amendment is kind of irrelevant if you have a country full of people who think it means that states have the right to have militias, right? Um and if in in no Second Amendment, if you didn't have a Second Amendment, that wouldn't matter in a country full of people who thought, well, I have a natural right to carry a firearm and you can't stop me. If that's the culture, the culture is what controls ultimately. That's why I'm saying not to ignore it, not because politics don't matter at all. There are those short-term wins can matter and they do have an effect, but um they're the they're the sugar, they're the candy, they're the easy things to put. You get immediate feedback. Ooh, that was good. It's a lot more important to do the long-term work of how should I raise my children? Um, right? Like, oh, what are some philosophical convictions that I should really make sure that I stick to and I'm not hypocritical about and really resonate with other people in my life so they can see? And how how can I set an example in my personal life? So I know that was a sidebar to your question, but I, I wanted to go there because I want I wanted to make it clear what I meant by focusing on culture and not politics. Absolutely. And it is, this is a marathon, not a sprint. So it is, yeah. And we can only, and I mean, we're both parents. And as you said, will we see this shift back or away again in our lifetime? Possibly not. I actually really do believe our, our children's generation is the one that potentially pull us out of all of this. I'm seeing real hope when I spend time with these kids, especially the young men. It's having them mm-hmm. rediscover their masculinity and that actually it's okay to be a young man in this world, empowering them to do that. So what have you been doing to empower yourself lately? Sure. I'll say people might might wonder, well, why did you stop doing <laughs> I'm clearly very passionate about a lot of the stuff and and I am. A few things happened. One is you know, we were talking earlier about the kind of conversations we had early on on Unsafe Space. I really enjoyed them. But what happened as the culture war became more at the forefront of people's consciousness, as more and more people were, were doing it, more and more people talking about it, I learned what succeeded well on YouTube and I didn't want to do it. This is a good way to summarize. A great way to do YouTube is stick someone's famous name in the title, maybe put a picture of them that looks outrageous. Say something outrageous in your title. So-and-so is a blah, 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 whatever. doesn't matter. Say something outrageous. Then be outraged, even if it's kind of unhinged and not really warranted. You don't even really have to talk about that subject for too much. You probably shouldn't make your video too long. People can go get a little dopamine hit about, I'm right. That guy is a jerk. And they feel like you're super intelligent. You don't have to do any thinking. 
Um, you basically have to be good at parroting other people's ideas or just ideas that are in the, in the memosphere that you see around that are popular. That works pretty well. Of course, there are exceptions. There are people like Jordan Peterson who can rivet an audience for two hours of nuanced, interesting stuff. But those they are the exception rather than the rule. And in general, those nuanced when early on, we were the only people having those discussions. So anyone interested was was on the channel talking to us. Eventually, we weren't the only people having them and we were having them in kind of a boring way. Right. It was like, oh, well, I'm really curious about it. Let's let's dive into the philosophy behind this and let's talk about uh, Gloria Hull and like, let's let's Mm. oh, let's read. I know. uh, Let's read Mapping the Margins. Like No one wants to do that. Right. And economics, too. You touched economics. I love the economic conversations, but not all listeners did. You know, not everyone does. Right. No. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a good actually. Peter Schiff is another one. We had a short but interesting conversation uh about economics with so yeah so all that stuff the stuff that i really enjoyed was not what was going to make it work on youtube and i didn't need to be the one yelling about how bad things were because everyone was yelling about how bad things were at this point it didn't you know my natural inclination i don't enjoy speaking extemporaneously i don't have high charisma i don't care that's not ever been my personality it's never been part of my career to be the the tap dancer with the attention on him usually at companies i'm in the background and someone else is is the person you know the face it's not in my personality i don't particularly enjoy it there were some other things that led to some shifts at the company which i don't want to get into but i eventually decided well we're going to stop doing videos and i'll start writing so we released some newsletters for a little while. Even fewer people read than than <laughs> I much prefer reading also. I like writing and reading. I'd rather write and read. Few people want to read. That was never going to be monetarily successful. And something happened early this year, right around the time you guys were having your cyclone. <laughs> we live in Northern California, as we talked about. And we had a neighbor's tree took our power line out during a storm. And it actually yanked out, it did damage to the house, actually. It yanked stuff out of the house. It it was a big deal. And so for three weeks, we had no power at all. And that, which meant no internet, you know, and we have a, at the time we, I mean, we, we have a child now who's about 18 months, but you know, she was a little bit over a year, maybe 14 months, whatever it was at the time. (laughs) Plus we had a 14 year old or 13 year old at the time. It's kind of tough to deal with a family with no power. And we didn't really want to live in a hotel because we are in a high crime area. So abandoning the house meant, well, we don't can't even have an alarm because we have no power. And if we abandon the house, who knows what's going to be left when we come back. So we kind of had to hunker down and build fires in the fireplace, live off the grid, so to speak. I, as a result, I didn't listen to the news for three weeks. I didn't pay attention to the news. I just went dark. Marie, my disposition improved exponentially. I was such a better father. I was a better husband. I was happier. I felt better about myself. I felt better about the world. I realized that this constant focus on how Rome is falling, and I don't, by the way, I still think it's falling. I haven't like turned into Pollyanna thinking like, oh yeah, it's going to be great. I get it. It's falling apart. But the constant focus really took its toll on me. And I realized one thing I had been doing which I shouldn't have done. It was a mistake. Was I was playing the martyr. I was sacrificing my own happiness and my family's happiness to try and save this abstract concept of Western civilization. I'm not criticizing anyone who wants to do that. That's cool. You make your own choices. It was taking its toll on my family and it was taking its toll on me. And the truth is, 
I was never single-handedly doing it, right? I'm just, I'm one cog in a machine of people who are trying to do whatever they can to make a difference. So I don't have to be constantly on the playing field. It's okay to go on the sidelines and do um, something else. And so I've really, I'm doing, uh, I'm the CTO at an, an, uh, a startup doing AI stuff right now. And I'm, it's in my wheelhouse and I love it. You know, the truth is if we step back here, I'll give you some positive news because I know it sounds like I'm I'm very doom and gloom. The preface here is I do think we're losing Western civilization. I do think we will lose Western civilization. I think America will lose. We will lose. Freedom will be dead for some period in America. It will happen because no one knows how to defend it anymore. Even those so-called defenders of it don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand the philosophy. We're, we're on a train to hell. That said, this is still the, probably the best point ever in all of human history to be alive. For most of human history, we had some warlord or king who literally owned us and could take our stuff or make us slaves or would come and slaughter us or take our kids away from us. We were dying of diphtheria or whatever. Like <laughs> Most of our human history has been immense amount of pain and suffering and unhappiness and lack of freedom compared to where we are today. And yeah. Lots wrong with where we are today. I think in the long run, maybe a couple generations, things might turn around. Like I'm, I'm feeling pretty optimistic about our children as well, and maybe they can be the start of some kind of turnaround. Or you know, I'm not, I'm not opposed to some sort of secession or refounding of something somewhere that understands uh, individualism a little bit better. You know, the idea that it has, it's always going to persist this way. Every empire falls, and this is an empire that doesn't even know why it's good why it was ever good. It's an empire that's forgotten what made it great in the first place. And it's unlikely that that empire is going to last forever. But that's okay. I'm not wed to the particular borders and the political structure. It's the progress towards individualism and freedom that matters. That progress over history, I think, will continue because it's superior. <laughs> like, if for no other reason, it's moral, but it's also superior. Cultures do better when people are free. I think it will work, but it doesn't mean it's going to work in 10 years. It might be it might be centuries. I don't know. I'm sure the human race will get, you know, get to a point of of increased freedom. But we are in a freedom ice age right now. You are entering the freedom ice age. Okay. I don't need to make my life miserable and my family miserable trying to heat up the glacier that's encroaching. It's okay. We can have a great life. We can save our ideas by writing them down and communicating them when we have time. Uh, we can raise generations of children who have their heads screwed on straight, who aren't born with cluster B personality disorders and creating havoc. Yeah. Be a good parent. Raise the next generation. Help them to raise the generation after that. Be a good grandparent. Will the world be better when you and I die? Probably not. Probably not from a freedom and political perspective. But you know what? So what? Who in history could say that it was much better when they like? It's that's a rare thing where you have some sort of movement towards freedom in someone's lifetime. It's rare. We don't need to be depressed about it. This is just look. Humans are messy. We make a lot of errors. We do a lot of evil, bad things to each other all the time. That's been our storted history. I I have confidence that humans will work it out. But you know, it doesn't mean I have confidence we're going to get back to minimalist government, maximal freedom America in the next 50 years. I think that's a little bit optimistic. Ridiculous. Yeah. 
the most important thing I think is is continue having conversations. Free speech is a really hot topic down here at the moment, and that's another whole conversation for another time. But sure. about improving anything is you can improve things. You never limit speech. If you disagree with something, fix it with more speech, you know, and just keep talking, keep having those courageous conversations. Carter, this has been wonderful. It's been so good to catch up with you. I've been talking to Carter Laren. Unsafe Space is still up with some great content. So let people know where they can still find that content that's still live if they want to sort of dive back into the archives, as it were. There is a YouTube channel called Unsafe Space, which I think is easy to find. But uh, the new stuff is mostly on Rumble because we have been... We often get banned from YouTube for various things. So, and then there's unsafespace.com has some written archives and some stuff like that. So you can find things there. And uh, like you said, it doesn't have to continue forever. Maybe it will be revived at some point. It is kind of still puttering along and, and Keith is doing excellent content. Like I said, almost on a weekly basis about really more civics. He runs a show called Mm. Rebel Civics and that's still active and doing its thing. So check it out. Thank you so much. I've been talking to Carter Laren from Unsafe Space. Don't disappear here on Reality Check Radio. We've still got plenty of more great stuff, including the Woke Word of the Week and Media Matters with Marty Gibson. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But, you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on. And the listener, the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back. You are with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and it's with great pleasure that I welcome back to Counterculture, Kelly Valudos from ARC Education. How are you, Kelly? Good morning. Good morning, Marie. Thank you very much for having me back. (laughs) Delighted to have you back. And part of the reason I wanted to get you back is I, as you know, have high schoolers, but these strikes are really starting to impact our kids. What are you hearing and seeing? Um, A lot of anxiety, um, which I believe is like (laughs) the straw on the camel's back. Uh, The anxiety has been really high not only through COVID, COVID definitely, definitely impacted um, the anxiety rates in New Zealand, but 
over the last five years, we've seen a doubling in depression rates, self-harming, um, all, all sorts of mental health-related issues. And now with a lot of our high school students, they're really, really worried about um, their credits and about um, how they're going to actually graduate at the end of the year for, for many of them. These strikes, which, as you said, being a teacher myself, I completely understand why they're happening, but they are definitely impacting on the mental health of our kids. Mm. Definitely, definitely. I've seen it. Um, I've had parents contacting me through the ARC Education NZ saying, you know, my, my kid doesn't even want to go to school anymore. Um, they're not feeling safe. They're not feeling secure. What do I do? Which is a really big question. You know, what do mm. you do? I just said in my own household with my kids, right, They the, the first couple of days they thought was a bit of a wheeze. And in fact, the very first day, they actually got an exemption on the first day because of the first strike day being so close to the cyclone here. I really feel for the school. I've seen letters they, as a, a school body, are frustrated. They're, they're applying for exemptions. They're trying to say, hey, look, we've got, particularly in the Bay where I am, we have other circumstances in play here. But the union is, is hard and fast on this. I know that they obviously are trying to keep everyone cohesive so they can get an outcome. But surely this game of chicken has to end soon because this is affecting the kids. The more I think about it, the more... I feel that we're on uh, hiding to nowhere at the moment with our education system. It is in absolute disarray. And I totally sympathise with, with the teachers themselves in that when, when you think about it, if, you, if, we, if they go over to Australia right now, they would be getting on average... 20 grand plus more than what they're getting here. And the conditions are that much better. I'm not saying that Australia is, is the be all and end all when it comes to education. That certainly isn't. But it, it is um, a lot better than what we are. But if you're a 30 year old teacher, you've been teaching seven years. Mm -hmm. So you've seen enough, you've got enough experience under your belt to be mm -hmm. attractive. You're probably with a partner or in a relationship or you've even a small family, you've got a, a massive mortgage. Gosh, that'd be looking jolly attractive, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. And they're leaving in droves. We're not being told about it either. Um, the, the teacher shortage here in New Zealand is at absolute crisis levels, absolute crisis levels. It is actually very frightening. And that is across the board. That's primary and secondary. And with these strikes on top of it, you can imagine an extremely stressed teaching staff. How are your kids going to be relaxed? It's, it's impossible. Mm. It's an absolute impossible situation at the moment. So when the um, government announces like they did a few months back with their education policy. That's okay. 
we're going to get more teachers in front of our kids and we're going to take the ratio, what was it, from 1 to 20, 1, 1 in 28 to 1 in 27. What's the talk in the there staff room? There was a lot of laughing going on. Yeah. Like, where are they going to get the teachers? Honestly, they, they brought in a whole lot of overseas teachers, mostly Filipino, um, Indian, because quite frankly, why would any teacher worth their salt come to New Zealand, get paid $20,000 less than, <laughs> than where they're at? A lot of those teachers just didn't work out. I had three contact me through the ARC Education NZ because they had the wrong idea about what, what the ARC was about. Three of them came to me and said, we're struggling in school, they're putting us on competency, we don't know what we're going to do, it looks like we're going to have to go home. And I was just appalled at what has happened. They've brought in these teachers they haven't given them any support in any way. They're being treated like crap, to say the least. Many of them are either segueing into another job here in New Zealand or going home. It's a situation that is just indicative of the whole systemic collapse at the moment. And unfortunately, that is really impacting every part of society. It's a very sort of chicken and egg situation as well. We've got this problem on our hands, but then we've also got the whole anxiety, behavioural issues that happen in the classroom. When you've got the one, you've got the other, and when you've got the other, you've got the one, if that makes sense. Our kids' anxiety and pressure is definitely shown in their behaviour. It comes out in their behaviour. It can't help but. It does for anybody. Your mental issues, you know, your mental health issues come out in your behaviour, how you behave. Um, so uh, the more stressed and anxious the student body is, the harder work it is for teachers, the less ability they have or capacity they have to handle that behaviour. And, and so it just becomes a downward spiral. In the end, really, the, the whole solution would be to go, whoa, let's stop this. Let's stop and rethink how education should look right from the grassroots. Because at the moment, the kaupapa or the, the backing of it is all about profit and productivity and getting ready for the workspace. But are they really getting our kids ready they're, for the workspace, they Kelly? Are not. They're absolutely not. Instead of focusing on humanity, on the humanity of education, we're talking about people here. We're not talking about sausages or products. We're not even talking about outcomes. People are people. You know, we need to we need to be educating our kids on their innate strengths, the strengths that every single living human being has in them. It doesn't matter who they are or what their mental ability is or whatever it is, 
everybody has innate strengths. And that's what we should be focusing on. Because if we focus on those, all the rest falls into place. I know this viscerally. (laughs) I've taken on some really curly projects in my lifetime um, with kids that were basically left on the heap because they weren't performing academically, their behaviour was terrible, they came from really low socioeconomic families. By using my kopapa, which is you focus on the person, you focus on developing that mana, that self that self-respect, that self-esteem, that ability to connect with yourself first and then with others and then with the earth. And by doing that, you you were then connected to everything. By focusing on that, these kids that were previously unteachable, and I do that in quotation marks, became wonderful, wonderful students curious, compassionate, and successful, going from from the lowest 5% of the intake to some of them going into accelerate classes in high school. This was an intermediate school. So I know in my heart of hearts and in my gut, if we refocus on developing our students as people, all that academic stuff just falls into place. At the moment, it's upside down. It's completely different. We're focusing on credits and behavior. It's all surface stuff. And we can focus on that all we like. And we can put sticky plasters over gaping wounds. It's just not going to work. It's Mm. just not going to work. The other trouble is, too, the government in its wisdom or the ministry in its wisdom keeps hanging on to these quick fixes. It becomes a burden on the teaching staff to implement these quick fixes that they think is going to be one size fits all and this is going to be it, you know, it's going to solve all our problems, whether it be play-based learning, (laughs) whether it be... Open learning environments to me look like the great experimental disaster. I I had an open learning environment and it worked perfectly for me and for the kids that I taught with. But that's because we had breakout spaces and because how I ran the class was very different to what you would normally see in a classroom. Here's the thing. You can... Put all you like into the classroom and say to teachers, right, do it. But if you don't train them, Mm. if you don't actually have them on board as well, I I don't know how many teachers, when they go to a staff meeting, sometimes I just wonder how their eyes don't fall out their heads because there's so much eye rolling going on because honestly and I don't blame them it's just another sticky plaster over this gaping wound again and it's just another thing they have to do it's it's insanity actually because if you keep doing what you've always done you're always going to get what you always got it just seems to be an insane 
situation. It just is a completely insane situation at the moment. I can fully understand why we have these students who are so stressed out. And it's not only our high school students. It's our primary school students too, because it starts right down right down at the beginning of school. I don't know how many stressed kids are are in the classroom that I'm in at the moment. I'm only I'm teaching two days a week. There's a lot of stress, a lot of stress and trauma that is happening in the classroom. And it is seven and eight year olds. I've not seen it quite this bad in my 30 years of of education. And how does it manifest with those kids? I mean, what are you saying? Behaviour, basically behaviour. Sometimes it can be physical, physical towards other kids and the teacher sometimes. It's like being in a dysfunctional family, you know, where um, kids are always playing off each other. Um, There's not a lot of compassion or empathy happening. What looks like self-entitlement happening all the time, you know, um, absolutely no cooperation in some kids or or even to the extent of some really bizarre behaviours like um, sudden outbursts, you know, screaming like, <laughs> or doing stupid things, uh, or trying to get kids on a, on the mat to have a conversation is nigh impossible sometimes, because mm. you've always got four or five running around doing what they want. Of that in a classroom environment, because being a parent with one of those children at primary, I was that parent that honestly, uh, nine times out of 10, I had to collect my son from the principal's office. But see, I resonate with what you're saying, because we concentrated right through until year nine, we concentrated on his EQ, not his IQ. IQ, exactly. And we got some criticisms, flack for that. Of course I did. we we felt with him that if he couldn't learn how to be a functioning member of society first, Mm -hmm. it didn't matter how brilliant he was at the other end, he was never going to succeed unless he was able to get on with his peers, get on with his teachers, get on with other people that he interacts with. So that's where we concentrated all that time. So to that end, he left primary school year six, still with only a level two reading level, which is um, six-year-olds got people yeah, yeah. Um, but we also knew he had dyslexia and that's where we were fortunate enough that we because he had ASD that we did have government funding a small amount but Minimum. every single yeah. cent of that dollar we we went down the spelled pathway and spelled it saved his life he's still he hasn't had spelled now for 18 months he's year 12 now but what we were, what she was able to achieve, he, we had the same spell teacher, was nothing had short good, of had miraculous. a good relationship. Yeah, we had an outstanding relationship, and there was a cost attendant to that. I will not lie, it was partially subsidized. We used that benefit that he had to pay for that, but it did not cover it all. And that was a commitment that we felt that we needed to make because if we didn't he was going to be a statistic at the other end of the sausage factory and we weren't prepared to. You weren't prepared. But, you know, yours is not an uncommon story, Marie. This is the problem. But when you have got families who cannot afford spelled or 
the Davis Dyslexia Program or whatever it is that you're, that is going to suit your child. You have to rely on the system. You My heart breaks. rely on the system. And there is no system for these kids. It ends up being coming down to the teacher that is with those kids in any given moment. With COVID and lots of, of teacher absenteeism because I was just telling you that I've just recovered from COVID myself. Re-entering society <laughs> hasn't been the, the most easy path, but there's constant change happening in the classroom at the moment. And there's all these sticky plasters being applied to try and stem the absolute bleeding out from the gaping wound. So these kids are under a lot of stress. Because change is very, very difficult, especially for children who are on the spectrum or who are neurodiverse in any way. But when you're having a different teacher every week, just about, you can't expect anything more from these kids. That's why I'm not like appalled about their behavior. What I'm appalled about is what's happening in the classroom that's causing these behaviours. And, and it's not only the classroom, you know, because a lot of these kids' parents are incredibly stressed because of financial problems or it could be socio, you know, social problems or problems, relationship problems and things like that. There's a huge amount. It, it's, it's like all compounded. And when they come into the classroom, it's this little space where everything happens because all their, their whole life is put into this little space and they're made to comply. <laughs> well, some of them refuse to, which I don't blame them. Is the classroom, though, for some of these kids, the only time in their day where they're in an environment that actually provides them with boundaries? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not all kids, and it would be a gross generalisation to say, yeah, all kids, but yes, definitely for a lot of kids. And certainly in the case of the the kids that I taught when I was working in the space of learning support and doing that project that I talked about previously, I would say to the kids, you know, I know, I know what your your circumstances are. I don't know by experience, but I'm, I know it's not safe at home for a lot of you. It's not a good place that you want to be. But if you bring that stuff into the classroom, you are creating an unsafe space for yourself here as well. And this might be your only safe space. Mm. And once they understood that, they would leave their crap at the door. Mm. It would normally take about six weeks. <laughs> the first six weeks were like, oh, my God, what am I doing? But after six weeks, there would be a complete and utter change in these kids. They would start trusting the staff in the classroom. They would start trusting each other. And most of all, they would start trusting themselves, that they weren't useless, that they could actually do stuff, that they have value. 
that they have this ability to do stuff and to be to be stuff. I also used to give them really strong coping mechanisms. We did a meditation program right from day one, and day one was usually chaos when we tried to do meditation. By week six, if I'd forgotten after any break time to, if I'd like, oh, we've got to get on with this work, they'd be going, no, 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 no. We haven't done our meditation yet. (laughs) There was a more focus on their life skills, their ability to connect, to communicate, and to create. Those are my three Cs, connection, communication, and creativity. Those are the human strengths and superpowers that we have. And school all but ignores them for compliance and control. If we could only change that kaupapa, if we could only start seeing our kids as human beings, as infinite potential. And I know that sounds fairly pie in the sky and spiritual, and it is in many respects, but that is the reality, actually. I'm talking with Kelly Valudos here from the ARC Education. I don't know whether I said this last time that we spoke, but when I was dealing with someone directly from the ministry with my son and he was asking lots of questions, like we were getting to a point where he could sit through a lesson without wanting to put a chair through a window. His inquisitiveness was starting to come out. So he was asking lots of questions and I was told that I needed to counsel him to stop doing that. His questions were disrupting the class and he wasn't there to ask questions, but there to do what he was told. Uh, yeah, to which Compliance was... and control. Yeah, exactly. So I've written down a lot of stuff here that I just want to dive into. Sure. It's taking kids from that cycle of victimhood to mm-hmm. value, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that victimhood doesn't need to be necessarily social or financial. It no. could be just in terms of attention. So mm. I want to sort of look at parents now. So let's start with parents first. Parents are listening to this and they're thinking, yes, yes, yes. Especially if they're a parent like I've been, I've been that child, you know. So you, I, yeah. honestly, seriously, walking on the school grounds for me at the, at the beginning and the end of every day, I felt like I was going behind enemy lines. It was, especially so at the the height of it, you feel so embattled and entrenched. So then, as a parent, you and isolated. The, yeah, That's the other thing, you're so isolated as yeah. Well. And then you know you're getting the glares and the stares and the, and it's just not a pleasant thing. So if parents are listening to this and they're thinking, yes, that's us, to me, that's already the first step, the fact that you're there, you've identified it. What are some of the things that those parents can do that the thing that's going to cost them is a little bit of their time and energy, but not necessarily put them under a fiscal strain? Well, first of all, you need to advocate for your your child because unfortunately, the system is so convoluted and accessible that even schools themselves, I know Senko's work their absolute butts off to try and get support for kids. Quite often that support isn't even appropriate for that child because teacher aid time is all good and well, but what is that teaching? You know, how how is that supporting your child in a, a way that is going to teach your child strategies on how to cope? It doesn't work. But at least 
if you can advocate for your child and be the squeaky wheel um, and be the pain in your Senko's neck, <laughs> at least then there is a little bit of push into the system to say this needs to change. I, I recommend if you have a child who is either on the spectrum or dyslexic, um, there are books and things that you can read that will help you understand where your child is at that you can possibly get from the library. One of those books is called The Gift of Dyslexia by Ron Davis. He is the, the founder of the Davis facilitating program, the Davis Correction Program. And Davis himself is, he's, he's in his 90s now, but he is autistic and dyslexic and was actually sent to a special school as a, as a no-hoper. And he taught himself to read and write. And once he did that, he, it turned out that he's genius. <laughs> He's an absolute genius. When I first read that book, it changed my life. Um, and that was in the 90s when he first brought it out. It was like reading an autobiography. I was like, oh. Because <laughs> one of the things that has always stuck with me is he says that dyslexia or, or neurodiverse kids think in pictures. They don't think in words. They think in pictures. And I was like, what? People think? Don't think in pictures. <laughs> I was absolutely astounded that people thought in any other way. You know? So I highly recommend reading books like that. There's another book, and I've forgotten, unfortunately, who wrote it, but it's called A Child of Eternity. And it is another book that is a little bit mind-blowing in, in its details and its conception because it's basically the diary of a mother of a, a non-verbal autistic child. It'll bring quite a lot of clarity to parents, I think, if they read it. One of those books that you can't put down, you know, you just got to keep reading, keep reading. Um, Adriana Rocha? That's it. Right. Oh, so I'm just writing all of this down, guys, because what I'll do is we've, we're getting very organised here at RCA. I make sure I write all of these down for interviews because I know what happens is our lovely team at the inbox at realitycheck.radio, they will hear these interviews and they get these emails saying, Marie was talking about with, and so if they've got a list of these resources, they can either distribute those directly to you or we'll, yeah. we're actually looking at getting them up on blog posts so people can go, right, what was that book that they talked about? So That, that sounds yeah. fantastic. I'm more than happy to um, do, a, do a book list and send it through to you too, Marie. That would be fantastic, Kelly. Yeah, that would I'm, be amazing. I'm just thinking of books. And I'm glad you brought up that book list, right, in time and reading. So before I got the diagnoses with our son, so it was six when we got the ASD mm. dyslexia and and we'd already had, yeah. yeah. We'd already well, we're all neurodiverse, actually. We'd already had our first diagnosis when he was three, which mm. was a sensory thing. The rest of the family was identified by the time he was six. Yeah. Now, up until that point, as you can imagine, the behaviours that we sort of went through were from a, just a straightforward parenting perspective mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. were massive. 
You know, when you're a parent, and especially this was our oldest child. I bet you feel like you're a failure. Absolute abject failure. I, for me, found Nigel Latter. He was very uh, prominent in the media at that time. He was doing, um, he had a couple of TV shows. And it was right at the time when our son was, we were really struggling yeah. Both my husband yeah, yeah. and I, and we by that stage we had a little brother, so we had this newborn and the amount I of can stress. Totally imagine. <laughs> and he for us was a voice of A, it was going to be okay, B, you will get through this, but here are some simple things that you can do. And it was done in such a way that it didn't make you feel like a failure. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I totally get what you're saying because we invest so much into our children and we can tend to identify with their behaviour, if that makes sense. Because in your head, you're thinking, oh, I know what everybody else is thinking, that, (laughs) you know, I must be a useless parent because I can't control my kid. But it's not about that at all, at all. And if you can get your head into the space of, this outward stuff that's happening is not actually the issue. It's the inward stuff that's happening that if we can connect to that, the outward stuff changes. But it's very difficult to not focus on the outward stuff, mm. you know, when, you, when you're having to pick your kid up <laughs> every day from the office or your child's only at school for two hours a day. I've got a parent who I'm actually going to be connecting with um, today who's in that situation as well. It's a really difficult not to focus on that. But if you can, find books find videos. You have to take the time to do it. And I know how difficult that is, us being really busy parents. And by the way, I think that that is another factor in the whole stress thing is that the whole rat race of the pace of of life, even in the last 10 years or 15 years, has just absolutely escalated to the point of of not being sustainable. Our kids don't have the same time and connection that they used to have with family anymore. And that's not pointing fingers at anyone. It just is the way it is, possibly (laughs) at worst by design, at best by default. But If you can spend the time reading, finding out how your child or why your child is behaving the way they're behaving, then perhaps you can modify some of the things that you do and say and and the environment around them that will actually help them. Yeah. Um, Like I know, as you were saying, thinking in pictures, one of the things that we did with our son is that if he, from a reactionary point of view, he would do things. When you're dealing with the autistic brain people, it is very linear. It's very black and white, but it's it's linear and tangential all at the same time. Absolutely. It's an oversensitivity. It's not a deficit. 
No, no. And so at a primary age child, and and not necessarily ASD either, but they will, um, for them, it is all about this is I'm at point A, I want to be at point B. How do I get from point A to point B the easiest way possible? And if you're putting barriers up between them. I was going to say it might be through someone. (laughs) Exactly. There is not a lot of going around. There is not a lot of going around. It is all about the most expedient way to get from point A to point B, which can make parenting quite challenging. And so then uh, things would ensue. And I spent a lot, once I realized about the visual, you know, when I, Mm -hmm. I said that I was told and taught, I had a wonderful actually uh, early childhood coordinator from the Ministry of Education that I worked with for a couple of years. And she was incredible and it was amazing the support for um early childhood was great the minute i got into the primary system it was bloody awful awful yeah 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 totally awful and she told me about the facial expressions how he was not able to read or understand those and this is before the Mm -hmm. autism diagnosis she'd already picked this up so i would then have to sit in front of him and all this chaos would be ensuing around him. Children would be crying. Adults would be angry. And I would take him away and I would give like angry face, sad face. And I'd say, what yeah. face is this? And he'd look at me and I said, this is an angry face. So when someone is giving you this face, they're angry. When someone <laughs> is giving you this face, they're sad. And it's not that he was being dumb. He just couldn't, he couldn't read the emotion. And once he learned how to do that, because that was a learned skill, mm-hmm. not an innately learned skill, it was an actively learned skill, that made a massive, and then we would have moments where something would happen and someone would be crying and he'd say to me, did I cause that? Yeah, darling, I think you might have. Yeah. Oh, do you, I think, should I say sorry? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and and what what actually once you understand these things, and they and these a plethora of YouTube videos, I, I you know YouTube is a curse, but it's also an absolute. See, they weren't when around when I was doing it, so exactly. I was so I was doing lots of Nigel Latter books, Latter books and things like <laughs> the that. library, lots yeah, yeah, absolutely. But um, YouTube today is an absolute treasure trove for little tips and tricks around uh, managing behavior and 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 also understanding neurodiversity and in, in all its forms i really recommend as a parent that you educate yourself once you yourself actually understand what's going on for your kid then you can advocate for them as well also please remember that the amount of and and i get it i get it the frustration in a parent when a teacher goes, I don't know what to do with this kid. Just remember that that teacher has is a human being, first of all, and probably has like nine other kids in the class <laughs> who are demanding their attention. If your child's behaviour has basically broken the camel's back, they're going to cop it unfortunately. So be kind to your teachers because I find that if you, um, I I don't have that problem. Of, well, sometimes, you know, you, I'd like to strangle <laughs> a couple <laughs> because that that is my niche. I've learned to 
communicate and connect with those kids. So I I often don't have that problem that I'm, you know, that I, I've got to get hold of a parent and say your your child um, needs to go home or or whatever. But remember that when you are dealing with a teacher who is seemingly frustrated with your child, be kind to them because often your kindness will rub off onto them and that will rub off onto, you know, towards your child. Um, If you can support rather than defend, you will find that your life will change at school. (laughs) Uh, that was very much the uh, attitude I took. I saw other parents that would get confrontational yes. uh, with the teaching staff and particularly with the principal. I took a different tack, um, not to say that him and I didn't get confrontational at the beginning, but uh, we we ironed things out. As I said to him, I've got two sons and seven years bet- with you and I, so, you know, either we, still, like, we get the groundwork out now or it's going to be a really long time. Yeah. Uh, and we did. And we actually formed a really tight working relationship. And we had to. Every year I wrote from, um, um, gosh, if anyone from the high school hears this, they're going to be really upset because I don't do it for the high school. But (laughs) I used every year at Christmas time, I would make, bake and cook and a massive big Christmas morning tea for all the staff every year. And I did it for primary school all the way through the intermediate school. Um, I stopped it at the high school. I uh, knew because he he well he didn't want me to do it because he did not want to be singled out that I had to bribe the teachers to um, to, to be on side. By that stage, he'd he'd gotten himself together. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it is effort in, effort out, and I and it does take time, parents. And I know I can hear the hear you guys saying now, but I'm this is so hard. I'm working. I'm there too. I was working full time. Look, I can tell you from my experience. Whatever time you invest now, particularly if your kids are in primary and intermediate school, whatever time you invest now will pay you back two to threefold when they get to high school. So whether that be if their EQ is actually good and they're, and they're confident, but you're worried about their numeracy and literacy, buy a times table book and do those funny old crazy rote times tables that they don't tend to teach much anymore. But if yeah. your child enjoys it, do that. Read. You know, get, read. get exactly. them reading. Take take them to the library every Saturday morning. Whatever it is, that little bit of time, that little bit of effort in now will make a massive different difference at the other end. It certainly will. And these, you know, these these other little tips and tricks, I highly recommend um, doing a mindfulness or a, a meditation practice, even with the whole family, you know, and even if it's just 15 minutes a day or three times a week or whatever it is, that I've I've found actually as being absolutely invaluable for a lot of these kids because what it does is it um it calms down their whole system and they're much more able to regulate and much more able to connect with other people if they're calm and cool and collected so and 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 you are too you know yeah. you are too if you're a cool calm and collected parent and, and today, yeah he was the the calm down music for my son and I didn't realize he was doing it actually he'd have his little headphones on I'm like what are you listening to and he'd found 
I downloaded Mozart's 50, literally Mozart's 50 greatest hits. And he would sit there just in his room with Mozart on. And I said, why are you doing that, darling? He said, it makes me feel calm. Calm, exactly. There's also, I'm just looking it up here, bilateral stimulation um, music, which is, that works like magic. So you put on earphones and um, you can get it on. There's a a whole lot of bilateral stimulation music on Spotify and YouTube and all sorts of places. Get them to wear that for now, so I've got kids in the classroom that are that come to me now and say, "Can I listen to that music, please?" <laughs> because it just the, the the whole vestibular system just seems to just relax and calm down, and they're able to focus. So there's that as well. Yoga, going out for a walk on the beach. Um, or in nature is really, really useful as well. If you can get them out there, because I know that's always <laughs> a lot of. <laughs> but it pays to actually bribe or make them get in the car and go out and and, and connect with nature in some way. Um, forest bathing, you know, go into the forest, and even if you don't go for a long walk. Go and explore, look underneath rocks. And, um, and even for high school students, you know, this is actually really, really important because with technology, we've just mm. almost disconnected ourselves from, you know, from, from nature. life. From real from life. life. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So let's just reiterate uh, again for people where they can find some of your resources with the ARC Education. The the ARC Education NZ, if you would like to get hold of me, um, it was lovely to speak to some some parents who got hold of me after the last interview. Just go to www.thearcheducation.co.nz and these are contact the other contact details are from there. We're also on Facebook, the ARC Education NZ. Instagram and LinkedIn. So if you are on either any of those platforms, please feel free to connect. And And Kelly and I will keep touching base, you know, as things with education. And I'd like to actually, once the education policies start rolling out ahead of the election, I think you and I need to have a little bit of a dig into that. Absolutely. Yeah, so we will definitely do that. So this has been Kelly Veludros from ARC Education. Thank you so much for joining me again today, Kelly. Thank you for having me. We're embattled, aren't we, as parents? And sometimes we just need to know that we're not alone. No, certainly not, certainly not. And if we can connect with each other, then we've got strength in numbers as well. We we can create something that's going to support us. Fantastic. Don't disappear here on RCR. There is still more good, great music, word of the week, media matters, all that's still to come here on Reality Check Radio and you're with Counterculture. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Remember, share them with us via email to inbox at realitycheck.radio or by text to 2057. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie and Martin Gibson as we do this time each week to discuss the media matters that have caught our eye. Good morning, Marty. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Marie. How are you? 
I'm much better than I was last week, so that's very good. Recording from a new location this week, so if everything sounds a little bit echoey to everybody, that'll be why well, I'm in a different Move to the underground bunker, eh? During the break, we had a quick chat about where we're going with all of this. Productivity, though, you did a bit of a dive into productivity, and there was some really interesting stuff that came out yeah. the, in the Herald, which, of course, I didn't get because of all the weather here, and the uh, the Pony Express with the Herald did not get through because all the roads were closed. Yeah, the poor old, poor old uh, Hawke's Bay and East Coast getting hammered again. And all the stuff is tucked away in, in the business section. You know, no one's got the nows to actually make a story of it. It is a big story. If you look at what's in the main body of the paper, it's it's mostly Marxist. And then towards the end, you get some sensible uh, comment. Well, there were three articles I looked at with the productivity. The first one was one by the uh, New Zealand Productivity Commission chairman, uh, Ganesh Nana. And he basically offered some explanations about why New Zealand lags the world in productivity. Seems to be, he thinks mostly, it goes back to the Helen Clark fund R&D. Government needs to pick winners. That was mostly what he sort of talked about. He said, it's no secret we've got a productivity problem. Uh, well, get on and solve it, Productivity Commission Chairman. Um we're really too small and too isolated from major markets. We don't have the necessary necessary scale to crack on on the productivity front. You need certain critical mass to do that. He said the agricultural sector was world-class, but it was running out of ability to boost productivity further. Well, it could be that, uh, Ganesh, or it could be that we've got a bunch of crazy politicians who want to include agriculture in our emissions against our responsibilities in the Paris Climate Accord because they're such a big proportion of our emissions. You know, you'd think that you'd mention that, being as it could be $70 billion this decade, but you're the chairman. An an opinion on the opposite page by Gordon Stewart, who's the director of uh, Chaperon, provides services to businesses in their dealings with banks. And that was quite interesting. He was basically saying, like all of these inquiries are, that it cherry-picked the obvious stuff, the retail banking, but left out how banks basically double dip by demanding all sorts of security on business loans. So it's harder for businesses to get finance, but they take big profits from it because of the risk. You know, all that stuff is left out. And of course, even further uh, outside Overton's window, you've got who's printing the money and who do we owe it to and in whose interest is it that we've got $200 billion worth of debt and precious little to show for it, but division and destruction. So was there any discussion in either of those pieces around staffing issues and wage growth? No, there's nothing about staff. There's nothing about the lunacy of raising the minimum wage to the point where you've got to pay your worst workers what they're not worth and you can't pay your best workers what they're worth. And you know all of these, this drive for the raising of the minimum wage is um, pushed by people who have never employed anyone. They've never had to manage someone so that they are able to turn a profit on what that person does. I've actually been shortchanging a bit with theories lately. So I'll give you my theory on workers from uh, having employed hundreds of people over the years. I uh, developed a system. This is when I was a cleaning contractor. Workers you can categorize in, in one to five. Number ones are the ones who are the dream workers that everyone wants to hire. They just move the hands fast. They're organized. They're conscientious. 
and they've got sort of some uh, barely contained aggression that they pour into their work and you want all your workers to to be like that number twos are the ones who uh want look at what you're doing and think man look at the money that guy's making i wouldn't mind learning to do that they uh want your job basically which is fine unless you're in a small town and so you put them with a number one and you've got a great team Number threes are people who could go either way according to who they're with, how they're managed, etc. And they can uh, mature to be number ones or number twos, or they can go down to be number fours who basically look at you and, and think, look at all the money that prick's making. You know, why should I bust a gut just to make them more money? So they're the unionists and the, the Labour Party people. Their job is basically to corrupt the number threes, isolate the number number ones and twos, and protect themselves and the number five, so you only hire accidentally because they break things and steal things, and you, the cost of managing them is always more than you actually make off them. So there's uh, my uh, theory for the day. The number fours are what I call the pasture gazers. The yeah, grass well, is you know, always greener somewhere told, else. Whenever I've told my theory about that to someone who employs people, Every single time they'll get a, a look of dawning understanding and recognise them. The minimum wage means you're paying fours and fives far more than they're worth, taking away their incentive to improve. You've got these really productive people underpaid and becoming disillusioned, theory versus practice stuff. Again, the prize for the person who's on the spot, I mean, you should get this guy and have a chat to him or someone in Reality Check Radio should, Bruce Cotterell. He's a company director and advisor to business leaders. He's the author of the book, The Best Leaders Don't Shout. Bruce, love your work. And he, finally, I get to read someone in the paper identifying the problem as the largesse that the public sector lards on itself. He's talking about all of this hand-wringing about, oh, maybe we should get some more money out of these rich people. You know, let's kill that goose that's laying the golden egg. But no one's ever getting around to actually talking about the danger that we face having a uh, public sector that's inching ever closer to 50% of New Zealand's GDP. Talking about the Greens' big tax announcement, their revenue spokespersons grabbed a headline, Wealth in Aotearoa is concentrated in the back pockets of a wealthy few, as Chloe Swarbrick. It's time we get in and fix this. Actually, that might have been James Shaw. Well, they all sort of sound the same, though, don't they? Yeah, yeah. It, I can hear the gulags in, in every single one. And he says, fix what? Success? Aspiration? Financial security? Oh, dear. It really is about envy after all. I have an alternative s- sentence with which a politician can grab some headlines. The amount of money wasted by this government and their coalition partners is disgraceful. It's time we get in and fix this. We don't need to raise more money from taxpayers. We have plenty of money. And he goes through just the crazy spending that the government does that you'd never do in a business. Just as an example, in the last few days, $160 million on COVID tests that need to be dumped. And Minister Viral is saying you need to do something about this to to fit order. And the reality of it is they mismanaged and misspent that money. $160 million. That's a lot of reading recovery that would change lives, isn't it? You've always got to see government spending as, as opportunity cost. And, you know, you always get that, oh, what do you want, less teachers and police? It's like, no. I want you to stop replacing your vehicles every three years. You don't need a limousine fleet. 
you don't need to live like Russian oligarchs, or even as you're fomenting Marxist class war here. Yeah, he's saying we've put on an additional 15,000 public servants in the past five years. That's $1.2 billion in salaries alone every year. Why? What are they doing? Do we need them all? Teachers and nurses, yes, but what about the others? So to those political parties who want to raise more tax revenue from us all, I ask one question, why? Before you go back to the well, you need to be sure you are using your water as efficiently as possible, and you're not. Um, That's really worth reading that whole article. We just need to look at, I know Peter Williams has covered it, Uh, we've mentioned it before, I mean 50% of journalists now in this country work for the public sector, spinning all this shit. Well, I saw a great uh, little infographic by Dave Farrar of Kiwi Blog where he was talking about how far left and hard left New Zealand journalists lean. It's a five to one inversion of the New Zealand public, that they're not representative of the New Zealand public's political views. And, and you know, I, I'm always at pains to say, hey, look, you know, I, I see left wing as essentially wanting more government and less freedom. And I'm right-wing in that I want less government and more freedom. You know, you don't have to put all the emotional, oh, you're Hitler if you do this, or you're Stalin if you do that. They're both more government and less freedom people. They're both left-wing. In the post this week, got a letter from the Honourable Christopher Hopkins. You did. Mr. Marie did. And I thought to myself, why is Mr. Marie getting this? Because believe me, if you knew my husband's political leadings, there would be no way that Mr. Marie would be getting the letter from the Honourable Christopher Hopkins. You have to summon him to a re-education camp, maybe. Yeah, well, potentially. So I said to him, oh, can I open this? Because you've got a letter from the Prime Minister, darling. And he said, fill your boots. And it was addressed specifically to him. So it wasn't just to the householder. It was specifically addressed to Mr. Marie, our address. Kia ora, Mr. Marie. When I became Prime Minister, I said my government would focus on bread and butter issues New Zealand households face and keep an eye on the future. And it goes on to talk about the things that are in the budget. So we've got five bullet points here of what they covered in the budget. But this is what I love. These measures support households now while also delivering longer term education, health and climate benefits. They're win-win. Cyclone Gabrielle and the floods were devastating for many people. The government is committed to building back better and with greater resilience. Build back better, eh? Mm, You make those bees little bees, they almost look like 666, don't they? Mm, Build back better. I was just going to say they really dived into the the spin box for that one. Um, Well, let's segue from that productivity and Bruce Cottrell actually sort of keeping with a theme, the big area that I pulled into, and it also talks about the Marxism as well. Uh, As you said, you look at a lot of it as Sunday Star Times, so that's what I was able to get my hands on. And the very front cover of the Sunday Star Times was an image of a retirement age man or woman. The headline is Special Investigation, Work to You Drop. The imagery is Soviet-era propaganda. (laughs) Totally Soviet-era propaganda. As I said, work to your drop, nearly a quarter of Kiwis pushed their employment past 65, one of the highest rates in the world. Four out of five of us don't have money to retire when we want, so how do we tackle the age-old problems of workplace ageism, housing pressures, and our lack of savings? So it is a very, very deep dive over a number of articles, but I just want to pull out a couple of pieces. The first one is the myth of New Zealand still working. 
Nearly four out of five Kiwis say money woes are stopping them from retiring when they want, and one in five boomers are delaying the day they'll down tools because of their nest egg just isn't large enough. This is Tracy Watkins, editor and Craig Hoyle. This is the one thing that I love, though. Don't you love it when journalists find that person to talk to? This is the real struggle that we have out there, and this is the struggle. They spoke to this woman, Alexis Mundy, is among those stuck in the rent trap, aged 64 and suffering chronic health conditions. The Wellington woman is studying for a journalism qualification, hoping that it will enable her to pick up some freelance work in the future. Mundy works part-time in retail and grateful that her employer is accommodating to her health issues. Mundy says retiring is not an option financially, even though her husband, aged 53, Alexis, you saucy minx, uh, is a full-time bus driver. They pay $525 a week for a two-bed flat, which she says is reasonable for Wellington. And I have to say for Wellington, that is pretty reasonable. But she's worried that she wouldn't be able to manage financially if it was increased, despite her husband working a 60-hour week. So that's when I did a post-it note calculation because I suddenly thought hold on a minute here $525 a week that's pretty reasonable rent she's still working part-time she's worried about their future moving forward there was I'm going to use it a quite a brouhaha about bus drivers the shortage thereof and how much they were being paid so I looked up what bus drivers in Wellington are being paid and currently they're being paid $30 an hour and uh, $30 an hour if you're operating that just at a 40 hour week you're looking at 62400 before tax for your earnings but according to her he's being paid 60 hours a week so by the time you throw the penal on that you're you know they're looking at $93,600 before tax now to be fair before tax with a twenty-seven thousand dollar rent bill actually alexis i'm kind of thinking there are others out there a wee bit worse off dylan so it's like when covid was on and all the reports were about hairdressers and cafes because that's where the 20 something girls who are writing the reports go look i don't know about you alexis is what 64 we're a little over 10 years younger than that the whole plan for your retirement message has certainly been drummed in since I have been of working age, no doubt. Now, I'm not a KiwiSaver girl. I don't like the KiwiSaver. I think a lot of funds are not well managed. And if you're in KiwiSaver, you need to do your homework. Mm. I personally have chosen to do other investment options, but I have been saving and investing since I started working full time. I like to call it the generic imperative. I'm not tight. I'm careful. I just get really frustrated that there are a number of people out there that have had time to make plans and have not are not prepared didn't to sacrifice. It didn't get the memo or they're not prepared to sacrifice a certain level, the life to which they have become accustomed. Because let's face it, we have been living high on the hog for a really, really long time. They continue on and dive into it to look at different solutions and the Retirement Commissioner come in there. One of the problems they do cite, of course, is that there are other forms of welfare, and let's call it for what it is, welfare, that retirees can't access because the means testing in that is too high. So, of course, their solution is, is let's drop that means testing and allow those people to get more access to their welfare. Now, I learned a really interesting thing watching a piece actually with Stephen Shaw, and he's the chap who did the documentary Birth Gap. 
and we did an interview with him on Paul Brennan several weeks back. Do check that one out on the replays. Mm. He lives in Japan. So Japan has a bit of a crisis um, in terms of childlessness. And one of the things he said in Japan is more adult diapers are sold every year yeah. than baby diapers. Yeah, that's the Let, tipping point, isn't it? And it? It is a tipping point. Where does that sit in terms of welfare? And when you think about it, he said that your assumption is, is that us as taxpayers, the money that we're paying in tax is going like into a fund to fund our pension and our retirement. But that's not the case at all. Whoever is currently in that pension level, superannuation level now, are being directly funded by who are currently working in the working well, we've got currently now, we're in the height of the silver tsunami, and these are all those baby boomers. I think the average age now of the baby boomers is sitting around 74. They're living longer, uh, their previous generation. We are the ones paying for them. I like to think I've probably got a good 20 years of financial productivity left in me, but this is the concern that I've got. What happens, Marty? When you and I, in 20-odd years' no time. No free-range retirement homes for us. No free-range retirement homes for the Mardi and the Busky. But And I looked at the birth rates, the New Zealand birth rate. In 1960, the birth rate was 4.24. So that's right at the edge of the baby boom. So the baby boom finished in 64. So you're looking at around four, four and a quarter kids on average per family. Fast forward to when we cropped up in the early 70s, it was around 2.3. It mm. had plummeted quite a bit. Sure, he said it, it all plummeted around the world everywhere at the same time. What a coincidence. The, it was, yeah. And he hasn't really been able to find a definitive answer to that because he said one of the reasons given in Japan is that they wanted to have more social work-life balance in Japan because they were working so hard. He said, and yet that birth rate also dropped in Italy. And he said, and you couldn't say that of the Italians they really mm. had that and it dropped here he talked about um, different triggers one of the triggers he talked about was the oil crisis which of course happened when we were little tackers that's a huge drop and that's when that first big drop happened the latest numbers that we have in this country is to 2020 it is currently 1.61 mm. so when you think that if you and i if the retirement age stays where it's at we base it on the kids that are born in 2020 at 1.61 at or even today 20 years from now, who are going to be our little taxpayers of the future, they're not going to be there. The tax farm is starting to look a bit sparse of cattle. And I've pointed out before, you know, I've done Google searches of Ashley Bloomfield giving a crap about the plummeting birth rate and whether there's any biological reason for it, you can't find anything. And, you know, in the paper, there's, you know, we always look to keep an eye out for these stories about people having troubles conceiving. This week, there were two articles about how onerous it is cost-wise having children. There was another one about how people with children tend to be more depressed after they get children. And there was another one which uh, was saying that the um, end-of-life uh, legislation was too restrictive in limiting people who are going to die within six months. So, you know, you don't have to look far to find sort of an anti-human agenda. And, and it's naive to think that the two aren't related. I remember when my, my parents used to say when they had me, I'm the oldest child at, at university in uh, the early 70s, there was still this, oh, you know, the world's overpopulated, you know, should is it, is it responsible having children? I remember sometimes people say that to me and I always say, uh, are you planning on having kids that make things worse or make things better? 
and they tend to say, well, better. I say, well, you better have more because we're going to need them. Which then begs the question, if you look at the flow-on effect of what that birth rate may be, for example, and education is one of our topics that we keep a close eye on, We've got an education sector, not only in crisis because of poor performance and outcome, but also in crisis in regards to bums on seats in the tertiary sector, as well as there is a teacher shortage we know currently. If there are going to be less children coming through the pipeline, is this a case that governments are fully aware of all of this? They're fully aware of what is going to be happening, and they are literally kicking for touch. They are waiting. It's the black pill, isn't it? The comforting thing to think is, oh, they're just stupid and they're doing a terrible job. The starker, dawning understanding is they know exactly what they're doing. They're doing a great job. It's just you don't know what the job is or who they're working for. Exactly. I'd love to see Bruce Cottrell actually throw his hat in the ring with education because talk about wasteful spending. My lordy lordy. Well, just the gaslighting as well. Oh, we've got a world-class education system. You've got a graph that looks like an X where NCEA achievements going up and objective measurement of the ability of New Zealand kids to read, write and do maths is just going down. While our education system's getting worse and worse, we've got these teachers' unions and policy wonks patting themselves on the back. I mean, the first step of addressing a problem is admitting you've got one. We're not there yet. Oh, speaking of not got one, Te Pukinga, which of course is now the, where all the politics have all been, a centralisation, I mean, there's a concept yeah. that hasn't been done before, communism, centralisation of uh, all our politics. Te Pukinga, they did forecast initially a, yes, $63 million deficit, they have now bumped that up to $86 million. $86 million. But speaking of the gaslighting, Jan Tanetti, hmm, one of your faves, Tanetti says she made her expectations around Tipukinga's performance clear and would be monitoring performance closely. She said the Tertiary Education Commission also is intensely monitoring arrangements to place a monitor in Tipukinga. There's lots of monitoring going on in Tipukinga. The key reason we created Tipukinga was to stop the reoccurring deficits we saw in the politics sector in 2017, 2018, 2019. These deficits would have continued and increased if we did not act. Yeah, I mean, the closer you get to government money, the, the stinkier everything gets and the less focused on the actual outcome that you're supposed to be striving for, the less emphasis there is on that. Mm. And that certainly was true in the polytech. On good news, though, one of the things that has appeared to have happened is a number of schools, and this is in the post, that so they covered the universities, then they covered open plan classrooms, and a number of schools are starting to turn off the idea. The, the idea that some ministry wonk arrived at after seeing a TED talk and that's but, never been studied for efficacy. That's the one. So the buzz, the buzz of open plan classrooms is a turn off. Many school leaders are turning their backs on open plan classrooms and the trend continues to divide the sector. Bridie Whitten takes a look at the modern learning environments and their legacy on a generation of children. Lorraine Taylor, principal of Silverstream School, used sliding glass doors to convert open plan classes for up to 60 to all 90 students to move them into traditional classrooms when COVID hit alongside more back-to-basics approach. 
approach returning to desks, books instructions. As a result, teachers are no longer going home with headaches. They can spend more time getting to know their students who aren't distracted by what's going on around them. This kind of hot desking and sitting on bead bags and whatnot is really distressing for the kids. Primary children don't have the developmental skills to be able to concentrate, she said. We've gone back to a lot more structure, a lot more work in books, quiet and calm classrooms, and it works. Oh my gosh, from the no shit Sherlock file. I've got friends who are teachers and they just tell me it's it's just absolute chaos and it's real easy for kids to get lost. Most of their effort goes to stopping the... um, the few kids who just are running around and just disrupting everyone. And then you've got the Marxist policies of the school that come out of places like Massey, which say, oh, you know, maths is a major driver of inequity. So, you know, if we put the bright kids in with the kids who aren't doing so well, then equity. As I've also said before, once parents find this out, they're horrified. But most parents are pretty oblivious to how bad it, it is. I just spoke to Kelly Valudos and she is an educator. She's uh, got the ARC education and I brought up open plan uh, learning environments, modern learning environments. She said she didn't have a problem with them, but she said she also worked very actively in that environment to make that environment work. And I think just having known her from what she's spoken about and the work that she's done, she's one of those teachers that's the exception, not the rule. So Mm. there will be those that will be able to work and thrive with it. Birdie does go on to a really good article, and it's huge. I'm not going to dive in too deeply with this, but it is very good. If you happen to get the post over the weekend, uh, do have a look at it. Well, you know, there's another article, and uh, oh, this is from Friday's uh, New Zealand Herald, Learning Gaps Worse, says uh, ERO, Educational Review Office. Also found principals reporting large numbers of students falling behind, some behind by well over a year. Don't worry, though. The Ministry of Education's Sean Teddy said they supported the findings and already had a range of initiatives to address attendance, behaviour and learning issues. Just to show they're taking it all seriously, there's another um, article in the same paper, Schools Urged to Respect Transgender Students. They seem to be putting a lot more time into that. They're basically urging them to follow guidelines from our old mates inside out, who, of course have as their patron saint, John Money, the pedophile from Victoria University. The ministry noted that inside-out guidelines for schools were not mandatory, and this leaves confusion for schools on what Ministry of Education expects schools should do in day-to-day practice, particularly regarding support for transgender and non-binary students. You just get the feeling they're not asking the right questions. And, you know, there was another article in Sunday Star Times, which was, again, just, I got the feeling it was out of the same nudge unit that said, oh, you know, heart lung and immune system issues are skyrocketing after COVID. Talking about private schools, see role, saw after going co-ed. It just never gets around to mentioning that the reason New Zealand parents are basically investing a really decent fishing boat each year to send their kids to private schools is because the um, public education system is increasingly not fit for purpose. Just never quite get around to finding that person who'd say that. What they haven't touched in this in this article is they've gone and 
uh, hit out of these private schools, which are the traditional private schools. So we're talking about Hereworth, we're talking about Rangiruru, Christ College, uh, King's College, uh, St. Peter's in Cambridge. The one set of schools that she completely missed in this article are the fully independent Christian schools which are out there. The Hastings Christian School here in Hawke's Bay has a waiting list a mile long, and they're not all from Christian parents wanting to send their children yep. there. They're, I've got uh, friends from- who, who have converted to Catholicism for that reason. And you know the strap line of this article says, what's behind the increasing popularity of private education? Tatiana Gibbs investigates. No, she didn't really. She didn't investigate at all. I mean, it's great that those schools are doing well, but it was almost kind of, it was dripping. I could feel the envy dripping off the page. And, and, you know, I mean, in that earlier article I quoted about the ERO report, the kids who are suffering most are are the kids from lower socioeconomic families. You know, it's the paradox of socialism. It hurts the poor because they don't have options to get away. As Orwell said, it's not that socialists love the poor, they just hate the rich. On that vein of hating the rich... In opinion, our friend Andrea Vance, I'm going to start there because you've actually got the best opinion stuff and of course I didn't get my, couldn't get my hands on it, but I did get my hands on Andrea. She was talking about a local body. There's been lots of hoo-ha in politics this week. You know, we know that uh, Michael Wood finally got his come up. It's Ming Food and decided to, he resigned, but then he didn't resign. Then he tried to unresign and then now I think he's just resigned that he's resigned. <laughs> Christopher Luxon, she talked about the conflict there with his wife, of course, buying an EV, even though he's saying that the clean car discount is something that is just hoo-ha-ha. I just love some of these quotes from her, though. As we hurtle inexorably towards the October election, the campaign is ever more like a reality TV show, where contestants get voted in or out, but with little to do and no connection to the people in the real world. Correct, Andrea. An expert panel came to the conclusion that after more than two years, roadshows, webinars and two reports, the series of compounding crises and councils are experiencing is unlikely to abate. All of these challenges are felt at a pace and will only intensify in the next 30 years. So she's talking about local government. At an almost constant state of perma-rage, where households endure eye-watering rates increases while councils Baff money on frivolous vanity projects cannot continue. We have reached peak rates, the panel warned. The anger did not translate to engagement. Turnout at elections is at an all-time low, aggravating the disconnect between citizens, institutions, and those supposed to represent them. She's pulled this out of this report for local government, but Mm. you just replace Mm. council with government, and you could be talking about what's going on in The the solution's never, hey, let's shrink this. I mean, it's quite jarring going to Gisborne and going from the main street with people shuffling around, looking depressed and resentful, boarded up shop windows from ram raids during the floods, etc. The biggest flashiest shops being vape shops. And it's looking grubby. Yeah, I feel bad moaning about Gisborne. But you go over the bridge and there's this grand new council building. Yeah, you just kind of think, man, this is let them eat cake, isn't it? And it's so sad because, you know, with that being our hometown, and I know when I was there, that's what I couldn't get over. Like walking down that main street that was done up for the millennium, which is when I was working in media, which is during that time, there was the optimism. 
The mm. optimism in Gisborne in that period, that summer especially, was just wonderful. It was so energetic. Everyone was coming together. It was such an incredible place to be. And as you said, you walk down that main street now and it is vape shops, $2 cheap tax shops and emporiums, mm. government departments. Yeah, a lot of iwi organisations and, uh, and, and yeah, the jarring difference between Tipuni Kokiri's building and the buildings on either side of it. Well, even the cop shops moved into what was formerly a department store. Dares or something, wasn't it? It is quite sad. It is those politics of envy. So she continues on around um, local government. It's ambitious and a thoughtful report, which local government minister Kieran McAnulty immediately threw on Labour's policy bonfire. Reforming local government is important, but bread and butter, oh, that's obviously the term they love, bread and butter issues and recovering from recent disasters take precedence in the short term. Councillors are deliberately being kept away from running their councils day to day, while unelected officials are focused on protecting the interests of their employer, their council, not the community. Mm. Who could that also be thrown and accused at? Yeah. Anywho, what did they say over in the Herald? The Herald on Sunday, yeah, good. I'll just skip over them quickly because we've still got a bit to get through. Actually, Paula Bennett came out with a, a, a timely article uh, about the open season on older white men, basically saying how hard is it to be a white guy in New Zealand at the moment. No, I, I never want it to sound like I'm whining about that, but I think it's interesting in terms of just the double standards, I guess, like the race thing. You weigh down the priority list for health, as we have heard this week. He can't stick up for himself or others. He'll be seen as patronising and using his privilege to put others down. But I worry about them. I worry about the message it is sending our younger white guys who hear and see it on a daily basis and wonder what their future looks like. So many men are now hesitant. You know, that's certainly true in the uh, groups who got together to stand up against the government. You know, that constant refrain of where are the men? Well, you know, men and women have been each subject to their own customised menticide, haven't they? You know, men have been sort of conditioned with a mixture of porn and nihilism to just think about themselves and also from feeling that the family courts stacked against them just going uh migtow men going their own way now they're being asked oh help us help us it's like well where were you when i was getting screwed over so that that was good uh shane depoe came up with you know fairly insightful column on um on nationals being squeezed by act and summarized a lot of flip-flopping on the uh, bilingual road signs uh, centrist housing accord, then flipping prescriptions, cross-party deal to reduce agricultural greenhouse emissions, and so on it went. So pretty good, and then it's headed for the weeds. Meanwhile, Luxon's personal popularity continues to spiral. Unfortunately, National has reacted to this pressure by deciding they need a scapegoat, and sure enough, it's Māori they've decided to target. All National sees is another chance to tell Pākehā that Māori are getting special treatment under Labour in an effort to garner some votes. Shane, they are. People like you are okay, bro. I'm not even going to talk about Shanil Lal, but, yeah, that guy's got a lot of hate in him. He puts the demon in Pride Month. On Shane Poe's um, take on National, you know, I mean, I, I feel bad kind of putting the slipper into them, but there's a, an article in the Sunday Star Times which quotes Nicola Willis as saying, 
what our country needs right now is hope. That's what national will deliver. So it's the election between hopium and the left's philium. Heads we lose, tails they win. Yeah, Tracy Watkins covered that off uh, in the Sunday Star Times, that particular speech. You know, it's really interesting in her column from the Willis speech. In the months ahead, hundreds of thousands of mortgage holders will have to move off a home loan with 2 or 3% interest rate to a loan with 6 or 7%, she warned. Skim through the latest property listings, and it's starting to show houses that are listed for hundreds of thousands of dollars less than what they were bought only a few years ago. So that's that whole conundrum between uh, your leveraging and your equity in terms of what you've done. And I get really fed up fiscally because I'm someone that, as I said before, I have been careful. I've been financially prudent all of my life. It's something that's been drummed into me since I was a kid. And I look at this and I think, I don't begrudge anyone wanting to get their homeowning dream. I think if you work really hard for that, that is something that you should be aspiring to. And I really congratulate anyone that has. And it is tough. When you've signed up for a, a three or five-year mortgage at two to two or three percent, and that mortgage rate comes off and you get stung, it hurts. But yeah, I mean it's you a know, big squeeze, isn't it? You know, it, you, yeah. it is a big squeeze. But you know, I bought my first house in 1999. The house was $134,000. And she was a, uh, what I would like to call a nice old Victorian door opera. I had spent far too much time watching Changing Rooms. The flush of youth, I was in my mid-twenties and I thought, oh, I, I can do this. And I was really proud of myself. I shopped around in terms of getting a mortgage and I was super proud of myself because I got one of the lowest mortgage rates that were going at the time. I fixed it for two years and that rate was 6.8%. Mm. You know what? I was also working in media at the time. I was I had both on air, but I moved into selling advertising, and that was a commission-based job. Tell you what, there's nothing better, nothing more motivating to get your ass off your office chair, out pushing the pavement, talking to clients, selling your wares, than a big fat mortgage than you have to pay. Oh, I mean, I've 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 been there being the uh, trying not to look hungry salesman on commission only. It's a miserable place to be. It is a miserable uh, place to be, but you know what? You certainly learn a lot of skills doing it. And whilst I do... download some software, doesn't it? It does. And whilst I really feel for people right now, if you're having to face it, you know what? Having been faced with a financial shock, you look at it and you go, okay, time to reassess. And you look at those levels of comfort and it's that old-fashioned needs and wants... And you'll be amazed at how many things that you think you need are actually things that you want. Mm. I remember someone that was uh, in charge of, I think, fisheries in Gisborne uh, lamenting, you know, when I was a kid and I was going uh, around the coast, every house had a, uh, in the bus, every house had a garden. Now I go there and every house has got a sky dish. Yeah. You know, Sky was something we got rid of. I literally went through the bank statement because so much of the stuff is electronic now. So you can, you can track it, you can map it. There's no excuse. I literally went through that bank statement and said, right, it's like, do we need that? No. Do we need that? No. Do we need that? Yes. But do we need to do it the way that we're doing it? How can we be more effective in what we're paying? And it's depressing. And it's a bit demoralising and you go through and you do it. But you know what? Once you've gone through and you've done it, it's really amazing how quickly that you actually realise that, oh, actually, 
you get used to the new budget, you get used to the, the way things are, and now that things have flipped over and have improved significantly, I said to my husband, you know what, we've actually, we've made some really good financial habitual changes. Let's not yep. change them. If you can avoid what's the old adage, spending money you don't have to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't like. Yeah. Alison Moore had a, an article, she was saying, um, I'm always puzzled about those inspirational stories about 20-something Kiwis and their property portfolios. You never have to scroll very far before finding details of the deposit-sized nest egg they were gifted from mum and dad or the grandies, which helped them onto the first rung of an out-of-control housing market. That's not inspirational. Well, Alison, in its own way, it is. You know, having a family, my grandfather spent two years living in a tent in the Wyoming Gorge when he was a kid. Then my old man grew up on a small farm and went to Waikahu College. My mother, you know, grew up in a state house in Kaikohe. Know that they helped me out too much with um, my mortgage, but they certainly helped me out with one or two other things. Building intergenerational financial stability is inspirational. You know, we're talking before about the inversion of the uh, aging pyramid. I tend to think that there might be a family compound or a certain type of village in my future. I don't necessarily, um, I mean, you know, you want your kids to to make their own way in life, but uh, I certainly wouldn't mind living close to them. Right, well, we need to wrap this up because we've been going at it for a while. What else did you have on your list? Well, you know, there was, there was you know, sort of talking about nationals, poor messaging with Māori. As I've said before, Māori are very sensitive to whether you like them or not. You can normally thaw even the frostiest Māori out if they think, oh, this guy likes me and is pleased to be talking, which I am, because I, I do love the old cousies. Uh, and I, there are plenty of Māori that I actually love. You know, I've got whānau, I've got dear, dear friends. It doesn't come across from the National Party. They need to be saying, hey, you know, like we need to be more than the sum of our parts. We've been divided so they can rule us more easily. We need to get on and help each other out and be our best selves, be more than the sum of our parts. You know, I think Tracy Watkins, in that editorial that you mentioned, said, driving a deeper wedge through an increasingly polarised society on an issue as divisive as race relations seems like the least likely path towards aspiration and innovation. But I assume she's the editor on 24, about eight pages earlier, there's an article, Signs of the Racist Times, Māori bilingual signage still used for race baiting, which presumably, as editor, she gave the thumbs up to. Because reading through it, I would never have gotten this past a sub-editor. They would have said, hey, look, you know, this is completely unbalanced. You're trying to pass it off as a story. It's an opinion piece, and it's, it's pretty slanted. They've got Cassie Hartendorp, of Action Station, you know, first up saying, God, she just moans. We've definitely seen an upturn in race baiting. Let's call it for what it is. This behaviour deliberately stirs up racism and is actually causing division, putting us further and further behind in our race relations. That organisation is a Green Party astroturfing to sort of try and pass it off as objective. And there's no balance. Talks about Don Brash was back popping up with a nomination for a new race relations commissioner. Not that anyone was asking just sort of really nasty towards anyone who's got an opposing view. But then it finished. And I mean, you can hear this gradualism. It's saying, oh, you know, now this is talking about the Kapiti renaming all the roads in Kapiti and how there was this 
objection to it by these pale, stale people. Now the council is hoping to have a more positive conversation with residents, having let the dust settle a bit. So it's that gradually inch by inch kind of thing. She closes with a quote from Associate Professor Kylie Quince, Dean of AUT's Law School. Whether it's disguised as being about signs, crime or health, the rhetoric currently being used by politicians is undeniably dog-whistling to a small but reflective audience. New Zealanders are so lily-livered about their racism, she said. Rather than just saying, I don't want Māori on the signs, they say it's not safe or nobody will understand. Own your own dumb views. Don't pretend there's another reason for it. Right at the end, she said, what we're hearing are only the dying squeals of a demographic that won't be representative of Aotearoa in 20 years' time. I can't wait. And, you know, when you sort of know a bit about where that kind of Marxist view is coming from, it's a short hop between I can't wait for these people to die to I can't wait. I can't wait for these people to die. Let's make some gulags. I don't think that Pākehā are racist toward Māori or don't want to embrace Māori culture or don't see it as a vital part of our national identity. What I think their objection is to is our failure to deal with our legacy of slavery. And you've got, I've said this before, you've got these iwi leaders and they uh, want to embody that slave-owning attitude to the New Zealand taxpayer. You know, you can take the fruits of their labours without reciprocity Uh, You can denigrate their whakapapa on the basis of some past slight. Yeah, you can trash talk them. And that's what people don't like. They don't like being treated that way. No, indeed. No one does. No. It's not not the Māori. It's the taurekareka attitude. Mm. The projection, you know, saying that people who object to race-based laws a racist. It's kind of, you got to bend yourself in knots to kind of see that as a rational argument. But it's never about rational arguments. It's about getting the revolution you want at all costs. And if mm. it means lying, then so be it. And we've got to stop expecting logic and truth from mm. these people. We're kind of like people who, you know, a hitchhiker can get picked up by a serial killer. We sort of know something's bad. We're going from the city, maybe through an urban environment, we're sort of thinking, well, I don't want to upset this person. They seem a bit unhinged. And then suddenly we're turning onto a rural road and uh, it's almost too late. Quote that guy who played Jesus in Mel Gibson's film is making a movie on child trafficking with him now. People have got to love their children more than they fear evil. It is tough to say, hey, the facts are all there. You're lying, and I don't think this is going anywhere good. No one wants to do that. I don't really want to be doing that. It's never going to get easier. Before we do go, Mm -hmm. I've been astonished at the silence of New Zealand's media on the Hunter Biden WhatsApp message. You know, and, and I got this off CNN. So most of New Zealand's news, international news, comes on America anyway. Most of it is sort of through the CNN filter. And of course, CNN has like a tenth of the listenership of Fox, and Fox has a tenth of the listenership of Joe Rogan. So it's, you know, they draw from a pretty shallow puddle. But there's no argument now that Hunter Biden, this was off Hunter Biden's laptop, he sent a message to pressure um, the CEO of a Chinese fund management company, who was also a member of the Chinese Communist Party. And this was back in uh, 2017, possibly. 
I'm sitting here with my father and we would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. Tell the director that I would like to resolve this now before it gets out of hand, and now means tonight. I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge, that you will regret not following my direction. I'm sitting here waiting for the call with my father. Now, soon after this, he got, I can't remember whether it was $2 million or something, and then he got into trouble with the tax department for not paying it, and then somehow whoever was a whistleblower on that got leaned on. It's not shocking news that the U.S. politics is corrupt. I mean, you know, everyone knows that. What shocks me is just the deafening silence by New Zealand's media about this. And the reason for that is that our politicians and our, uh, our media are all in that deep state. There's a, an article about Chris Hipkins' visit to China and he's going to speak to the summer Davos over there. We don't ever hear about that either. No. Well, I mean, in the US, it's a case of orange man, man, and corrupt man better, isn't it, really? There's no talk of how corrupt he is, and they're incredibly corrupt. And this isn't, you know, they've weaponized the FBI. Mm. So again, you know, the serial killer is kind of making chit-chat with us while there's a chill running down our spine. You better listen to your gut on this. I'm going to finish off with things with your gut, if you're going to feel in your gut, out of Australia. Cow's seaweed diet backfires as they produce less meat. This was a tiny little bit hidden in the nether regions of the post. Feeding cow's seaweed was introduced in Australia as an ingenious way to reduce their carbon emissions. But there has been an unforeseen consequence, isn't there always? Research suggests it puts them off their food, meaning they produce less meat. Australia's biggest cattle owner has conducted a 300-day trial with 80 Waigu cattle fed a twice-daily ration of asparagopsis, a native red seaweed, which prevents the formation of methane by inhibiting a specific enzyme in the gut during digestion. Although the final results have not yet been published, the Australian agricultural company told the shareholders the seaweed did not appear to have affected the quality of the meat, but it certainly has affected the quantity. Well, the good news is that now they're brewing chicken meat from chicken cells. In a lab. That's the next step after, well, we tried to get the methane down from the cows, but that didn't work, so uh, you'll eat the bugs. There's always so much to talk about. Thank you again. You can catch Marty with the political panel with Paul Brennan on Friday morning. Marty Cam, Olivia Pearson, and, of course, Paul Brennan here on The Breakfast Show. But uh, next week we will catch up. There'll be more again, I'm sure, for us to chew over. Marty, thank you very much. I hope you have a great rest of week. Same to you, Marie. I hope you do also, and uh, have a great week, everyone. Thanks. Share widely. Share widely. Don't disappear. There is still more to come. The Woke Word of the Week is up next. And remember, if you've got any feedback for Marty and I, just give us a bell. 2057 is the text number or inbox at realitycheck.radio. It's time for the Vocabulary Word of the Week. The Woke Word of the Week is where we take a look at words, phrases and language that make up the lexicon often deployed by those in critical social justice. And today's Word of the Week 
dog whistle. Classic definition is a whistle that's ultrasonic sound is only audible to dogs. The modern interpretation of dog whistle is the alleged use of coded or suggestive language and political messaging to garner support from a particular group without provoking opposition. This is another one of those it's okay for me but not for thee vocabulary words. A crude, blunt example of dog whistling is the use of pronouns in an email signature or bio. It could also be the subtle switching of commonly used words, such as New Zealand with Aotearoa. Those fervent social justice proponents will defend this as they say that they're using language as it should be used. But in doing so, they signal to all their mates, we're in the woke boat with you, but then there are the fantastical claims, such as News Hub that Posey Parker sent out a white supremacy dog whistle when all she was doing was fiddling with a zipper on her top. What I know about dog whistles is watch out for how many dogs you call. Depending on breed and conditioning, sometimes you can call a dog that will be a loyal friend, but you could also just as easily call a mangy old bitch that bites. Thanks for joining me again this week for another very full show of counterculture. And keep that feedback coming. Inbox at realitycheck.radio or drop us a text. 2057 is the number. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Buskey on RCR. Reality Check Radio.